Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 49, Aviary, recorded on February 27th as we have another ice storm due this evening. Thanks for joining me today. A big continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible new album, Charlemagne, on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Maybe Days, and our outro is Toucans. Have some corrections today. I was mistaken in believing that the Robert McLaughlin Gallery in Oshawa was the Station Gallery, also in Oshawa. And I think I called the Robert McLaughlin Gallery the Roy McLaughlin Gallery, so I was all over the place, and as you can imagine, uh, I did not make the sale. <laughs> Um, also, it was my mistake. I keep mistyping now with a T. I keep saying, uh, when I go to say something is now, or I'm ready now, I keep saying not. And, uh, that's causing some misunderstandings. My apologies. And, uh, it was rice that was the San Francisco treat, not testosterone Uh, those are, those are something else. All right, in dinosaur news already. From September 1983, our first news story is Ceridactylus atrox, a new pterosauria from the Araripe Plateau Sierra, Brazil. Published as an abstract in a book, and I won't bother trying to say this in Portuguese, it appears to be a book by the Ministry of Mining and Energy, the Department of National Mineral Production for Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. You can only imagine me trying to say that in Portuguese. Uh, Ceridactylus was named based on a skull with mandible identified to belong to the family Pterodactyloidea originating from the early Cretaceous and was excavated from the Ramodo Formation, Portuguese. The, the name refers to the Brazilian state Ciara and combines with the Greek dactylos for finger, a reference to the wing finger of pterosaurs. The Latin atrox means frightful, a reference to the fearsome dentition in this species. It's believed to have had a pescivorous diet due to the kinked upper jaw and interlocking teeth, believed to be great for slippery fish. And you can remember we uh, we called it uh, a subnarial ga- gap or something like that when we were talking about Dilophosaurus earlier. This might have had something like that. Uh, there was much confusion as to what this shattered, excavated, and glued together animal looked like and to which pterosaur family it belonged. It was many years later that our next news article was published uh, redescribing what Ciarodactylus might have been. A redescription of Ciarodactylus came from the paper Redescription of Ciarodactylus at Etrox from the early Cretaceous Ramaldo formation of the Araripe Basin from Brazil, uh, and that was published in January 2014. The paper notes that the specimen first described in 1983 caused disagreement among paleontologists because the skull was badly damaged. It was glued together. The two pieces may not have been from the same animal, let alone from the same species of animal, and so it was no wonder that it was considered to be everything from an ornithochirid to an indeterminate pterodactyloid to a... I can't even pronounce this. Pronounce this. It starts with the letter C, T, and then E-N-O. So, catenochasmatid, whatever that is. And uh, where it wound up during their the redescription, they came up with an anagnurid. 
<laughs> so lots of lots of easy words to say. As an anagnerid pterodactyloid, that would make it one of the latest surviving pterosaurs to actually possess teeth. And typically, they had a premaxillary crest, though the animal lacks a crest. By 1991, the estimated wingspan was about 18 feet and maybe a little bit more than 30 pounds. So Crichton actually undersold uh, his description of the Ciarodactylus in the novel a little bit. It's not believed that there was a crest, but it was on the animal's snout, not behind its head. Apparently, the wrong bits were glued together. The fossil, you have to imagine, was in really bad shape. And so once they got it all figured out, they realized that the back of the skull was taped or glued to the front of the skull or the wrong places. In any case, uh, once they could identify the shape of the skull, they could figure where the crest was and finally start to piece where this thing fits into the family tree. And so Ciarodactylus, a late surviving pterosaur with fearsome teeth, a modest 15-foot wingspan, and a crest on its snout uh, was described. So stay tuned. We're going to come across more of these critters later in this episode. And with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. You'll remember my terrific guest from his first appearance on episode 13, Shadow. He's an Olympic medalist and knifey spoonie. All the men he knows are men at work, and he'll gladly accept your dollary dues for a Vegemite sandwich. Coming to us live all the way from the land down under, it's the incredible raconteur and author and contributor to the Prehistoric Times magazine. It's Phil Horror returning. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me, and that's a hell of a thing. Well, yeah, <laughs> that seems to episode's one of the best ones i thought so yeah did i miss any culturally infuriating stereotypes oh uh <laughs> i don't drink fosters um <laughs> um my boomerang does come back okay i i don't ride a kangaroo to work and um, i understand it's a happy belated birthday it is thank you very much yeah so i looked into the traditional australian birthday party and let me know how my research turns out here it says you take a whiskey drink a vodka drink you take a lager drink and you take a cider drink and then you blow the shrimp off the barbie and make a wish is that so we don't say shrimp we <laughs> say prawn <laughs> and uh what one of the weird things we did when we were kids is we had something called fairy bread. I don't know if you guys did it in Canada. Okay. Like it might be a holdover from England, but I'm not sure. And it's basically you get the cheapest white bread you can possibly find, slap some butter on it, and then you get those, we call them hundreds and thousands, but the sprinkles, the little candy sprinkle things that you get on top of cakes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's what your mother puts on the plain white bread with butter. And that's literally served at kids' birthday parties as a treat. And we're all looking forward to it. <laughs> That's almost like a cupcake. <laughs> it's not so far off. With a cheap, nasty white bread. <laughs> so, um, Australia's a weird place, mate. Yeah. Well, it's good to see that movies have prepared us to to know each other uh, <laughs> so clearly. <laughs> These things don't translate. It, no, no, it is, and it is like a, it is a very strange thing. Like um, when I was working in England, you'd hear the accent, the American accent. And we very quickly learned you ask, oh, Canadian? You don't ask if you're American. Okay. Because if they're Canadians, they're not going to be happy with that. <laughs> Where if they're Americans, they don't care being called Canadians. <laughs> I found that if you so mistake yeah, somebody for their neighboring country, that there's, a, there's a, a discomfort that comes with being mistaken for your neighbor. And I don't know what that is, but you can't call a Serb a Croat or something like that. That just doesn't go over. The Finns don't no, like that's true, Swedes. and that's probably because of sports. You know, <laughs> they want to beat each other at sports and, and probably some war from 400 years ago. But mm -hmm. Americans aren't aware that that's a diss because they <laughs> like Canada. <laughs> but we're the same. Like if you said, oh, New Zealander, yeah, they have to punch in the face. <laughs> I'd, have, uh, I'd have to rustle crow you. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> 
so I'm trying to think, from the last time that we spoke, we didn't get a chance to talk about any of your writing. And I think that was something I wanted to get to that we ran out of time for. So um, We talked about so much. Yeah. <laughs> I guess... So, uh, well, let's talk about my writing. Yeah, yeah, let's get into that. So, I um, it says you do books. I understand that they may be murder mysteries. Uh, you could tell me what they are. I don't know. Yeah, um, so I've got a couple of books, um, and I've got a couple of books coming out very shortly. Oh, wow. Um, I've got I've got a sequel to my first ever novel, which was actually um, uh, because I'm such a history nut and I'm always looking for weird history. Um, I discovered Arthur Conan Doyle, who mm -hmm. wrote Sherlock Holmes, and of course, um, uh, The Lost World, and um. Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, in real life were cousins. Okay. And they were they were in London in 1888. One was a newspaper reporter, one was a doctor during the Ripper murders. Okay. I'm like, how can you not, not use that? Basically, my first book is based on the old Raymond Chandler, Humphrey Bogart movie, The Big Sleep. And it's, a, it's based around the Ripper murders, but with my two characters investigating the murder, one of them being a bit Sherlocky and one being a bit Watsony, and suddenly a, a newspaper reporter finds out about the murders and is starting to trying to hustle in and then he knows a doctor who can help out which is uh Stoker and Doyle and so whenever anything Dracula happens Ram Stoker's like oh that's a good idea for a book <laughs> and if anything like Sherlock you hope hopes happens <laughs> Doyle's like oh that's a good idea for a book interesting so it's like so uh, again it's all real history we, yeah just I always kind of say if you know the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are the two characters in Hamlet. They're his best friends. And there's actually a play about them just talking amongst themselves. And then they keep walking into Hamlet and doing their lines in Hamlet and then walking out. And it's what they're doing between scenes. Right. So that's how I describe these books. It's the real history. Just my characters aren't real, but they keep walking into the real history. There's some line in that. Uh, the only one I know, it's something like, um, we're better than regular people. We're actors or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, who. you know, and and it's it's such a yeah, it's a great play because a half the fun is they've forgot they've been called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for so long they've forgotten which one's which oh. <laughs> themselves, and it's never said in the play. Uh, yeah, so uh, book two, which is about to come out, is actually based. So the first one's based around Dracula. The second one's based around the Mummy, because mm -hmm. it's the hundredth anniversary of King Tut's discovery which is shockingly quiet. Nobody's talking about it. I think they've forgotten. So, yeah, it was 100 years ago that the Carter found the, the tomb. Mm -hmm. Carter found the tomb. Uh, yeah, so it's my guy, my main guy who's ancient, reading about this and then in 1960 reading that they've just gone back to uh, King Tut's mummy and somebody stole his penis, which is absolutely true mm -hmm. and is still missing. Facts make the best <laughs> And then him yet. reminiscing... <laughs> Yeah, well, he was there at the time, and he's hidden something in Tut's tomb. And so it goes back to Alexander the Great's invasion of Egypt. It goes back to Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. Mm. And this guy's with them the whole time because they're trying to stop something getting out of Egypt. And I just kind of mentioned it's the mummy. That sounds uh, like yeah, a so it's all real history. And again, I, I kind of got that idea because I found out Alexander Dumas, the guy who wrote um, Three Musketeers, was black, and his dad... His dad is Alexander Dumas Sr., was the second most important soldier in France. He was second under Napoleon, and he's the guy who actually did most of the attacking in when France invaded Egypt. So this black African soldier is the second most important soldier in France and leads this war into Egypt. What? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do something with that. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah it's great and, inspiration. Yeah, yeah so... 
you know, it's just you start pulling threads. You start looking through their own private histories and stuff like that and finding things that match your story. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Wow, yeah. good for you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so I just have to put in my the other book that's about to come out is uh, The Thing. So right. the 1982 John Carpenter movie, The Thing, the um, 1952 movie, The Thing from Another World. I've actually written a book about the, the media history of The Thing, going through all its different uh, variations because people don't realise there was a song. There's been numerous different versions of this, of The Thing, and even some of the marketing that was done at the time is just phenomenal. Mm. Uh, yeah, that'll be coming out very shortly too. That's really cool. Really. So where would people, if they wanted to go find more of that stuff, where, where would they look for it? Oh, yeah. It, a, if they find me on Facebook, that's easy. But uh, I've got an Amazon author page and uh, the thing will be coming out through Marcosi, which is an English comic publisher. Mm-hmm. And um, the other one will be coming through an Australian publisher. But yeah, but if they just look, look me up and look on Amazon or just look on Facebook. I've got a pretty active uh, page for The Thing because there's a lot of stuff I couldn't use. Mm. So I'm using that to advertise the book coming up by showing images and photos and stuff that I couldn't use for the book on this page to get everyone really excited. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And and you're doing other crazy stuff. You're telling me your, your throat is coming home. You're coming home with a horse throat because you're hosting these Jack the Ripper tours. How do those work? Yeah, so bizarrely australia has a very long history with jack the ripper that is bizarre (laughs) and the number the number one suspect the british police have at the moment is a guy that was hung in melbourne in 1892 and he committed a whole bunch of movie uh, murders in australia a whole bunch of murders in england and south africa he was traveling the world murdering people wherever he went when when they arrested him they kind of went through his history went hang on you were in london in 1888 you were in Whitechapel, and he and I'm currently in Rockhampton, which is in North, uh, like central Queensland. And he was here for three years. Like this guy lived in Rockhampton for three years. So yeah, uh, when I discovered that, and uh, would I, I just do a walking history tour because it's a, it's a, it's the, the the town's like 150 years old. It has the biggest gold mine in the world, which paid for all these astonishing buildings. The architecture in Rockhampton is insane. Well, uh, it's the largest collection of heritage listed buildings, especially on the one street in Australia. It's just crazy. And um, I got here and nobody was doing anything about the history. It's almost like they're ashamed of their history. And I kept finding all these bizarre murders. And there was actually a river monster right in town. And there was a giant crocodile that was taking people off the streets almost in the, in the center of the town because <laughs> the river runs right through the middle of town. I'm like, Oh, guys, you've got to be doing stuff with this. So I started doing uh, history walks. And, yeah, so that's why the other night I just – I'd done a bunch of them and it was very windy. So, A, it dehydrates your throat and plus you have to talk a bit louder than normal. So, yeah, I came home mm. and I was a bit hoarse. Mm. I'm sure you get quite animated through it as well. There's a there's a presentation yes. to it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, that is my real job is, you know, I've worked at the Smithsonian, uh, the Chicago Field Museum, the London Natural History Museum, the Australian War Memorial as a – educator for so for schools and stuff like that so mm-hmm. doing tours is what i do and telling stories is what i do so writing is just a extension of that <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing stuff so last week we spoke everybody was telling me boy that last guy you just had he was pretty good you should have him back and i was i agreed and so i uh, I, I got in touch <laughs> with you i said hey what uh, if you could choose any chapter because we were still early in the book at the time uh what chapter yeah. would you like to to come back and do and uh, and you picked 
the ivory. Yeah. <laughs> Which, what about uh, the aviary made this your favorite part of the novel? I guess it was kind of the surprise part of it. And it's the thing that looking back when I originally uh, read the book in the very early 90s, I think it was, basically when it first came out, mm -hmm. there was two things that I remember really standing out. And one was the T-Rex swimming through the lake. Yeah. Uh, that, that, because I, I hadn't thought of it, the Tyrannosaurus doing that and kind of went, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But the Avery part really stood out because, uh, like, I love the book. And, yeah, there's lots of great stuff. But this was just almost a little tale within a tale. And I thought, oh, that's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind talking about that. And plus, I was running the National Dinosaur Museum when Jurassic Park 3 came out, which is when, obviously, they used the Avery in the movie. And the utter hatred of what happens when they film the Avery part with the Pteranodons where people who know, let's just say teeth, mm -hmm. um, yeah, really, because I was having to deal with, you know, disappointed kids and things. So that whole kind of sequence really stands out in my head as uh, something important to talk about. Mm -hmm. Keen to do so. Yes, I would call it the Tyrannolotodon. <laughs> That's uh, not for bad, anybody actually. who isn't aware, Tyranno, literally the no in Tyrannodon means no teeth. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the designers missed that part. <laughs> well and yeah yeah and i'm sure we'll talk about that so we don't need to get into it yet but yeah i found out some interesting stuff about uh, the teeth so anyway we'll, we'll get to that oh sure are you a big pterosaur fan i am which is weird because there's none in australia like they've started to find a few now but we've traditionally never had any almost anything dinosaur age there's very little in mm -hmm. australia and traditionally what there has been has been scattered remains mm-hmm they're starting to find a few bits and pieces now. And in fact, they've found, I do believe a piece of one of the very large giraffe sized, you know, Quetzalcoatlus sized pterosaurs. So, yeah, which makes sense. They would have been all over the world and, and this would have been a big open marine area at the time. So, you know, fishing pterosaurs would have been here. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you know, they're just, they're just cool things. They sure are. Yeah. Those, uh, are they ash darkids? Is that what they call the Quetzalcoatluses and the, uh, yeah, the really big ones. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's because you're not supposed to name anything when you've only got one or two bits. Yeah. <laughs> but Australia has traditionally so few bits that we have named a lot of things when we shouldn't <laughs> have named them. Because, yeah, you can't name it with just one bone. And yet quite a few Australian dinosaur species are named just after their very, very limited remains. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it's been named. Uh, I can't recall ever hearing that. But um, there's another one that is somewhat related to the the one we'll be talking about from the book, uh, was found in Queensland a little while ago with the, the jaw and stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so anyway, um, yeah. But for myself, I I always go back to my first memory of dinosaurs. Was, uh, there was a record release by MGM called Dinosaurs, and it had um, Basil Rathbone, speaking of Sherlock Holmes, um, and it was the story of the Lost World, just a, an old kind of radio play, The Lost World, that they released on LP in the 70s. And there's a, a bit in that where they go and try and steal some eggs from some pterosaurs. And listening to that as a kid through audio, no visual, you know, you're now imagining it and mm -hmm. it's so much bigger in your brain than it is if they could show it on screen. So, yeah, I've always loved pterosaurs because I, I still remember the noise of the pterosaurs attacking them. Mm -hmm. which just in your headphones when you're a kid listening to this uh, record was just amazing. Mm -hmm. We had uh, something called dinosaur world 
And then there was a second book called Lost in Dinosaur World. And I had another one. It was like on the prehistoric seas or something like that. And so you would have a cassette and it would come along with a book. And I remember oh, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. audio production was just extraordinary. And uh, the, the the voice acting, extraordinary. The dinosaur sounds, the, the sound effects, everything was just, you could read the book, but you could just listen to the tape, the recording. And it was enthralling in so many ways. And I can only imagine that the thing you're listening to is just the same. You just, you're so immersed in the, in the environment because the, the production is always great on those. And I'm pretty sure you can get it. Like you can download the record that I'm talking <laughs> about. So if you want, I'll send you a link to it. And maybe if we stop for a second, you can cut in a bit of the sound now when you do an edit and they can hear the thing I'm talking about because it's, it's freely available. Sure. It sounds um, just like this. They've seen us. Look above you. Watch out. Shoot some of it. All right. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but what's really cool, and that's why I'll always defend Facebook. Facebook has a lot of problems. But I'm in a very strange position because I write for the Prehistoric Times and, and, and I just get to meet or, or talk to people. I found the engineer of that record from the 70s. I found the guy who made it. Wow. And I started interviewing him because um, I don't know if you remember there's in the 70s, there was all these read-along superhero and Battle of the uh, Planet of the Apes and all these read-along records where you get the book and the record or the book of the tape. And he was behind a lot of these things. He did all the Batman ones and the horror ones and... And he's the only surviving guy. Basil Rathbone's obviously been dead for years. All these people have been dead for years. And unfortunately, he just recently died. But I managed to get a couple of interviews in with him before he died. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, going to hopefully write that up for um, one of the monster magazines, maybe Famous Monsters, if they start publishing again. Um, but, yeah, so I've got this nice little gem of the basically the last surviving guy who made this thing from my childhood. Uh, so it meant a lot. And, you know, I was gushing all over him like, oh, mate, you have no idea what you mean to me. <laughs> you know, you're the reason why I got into dinosaurs. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Yeah, which, funnily enough, I got that record for my birthday in around 1973. Oh, wow. Around this time, which back makes in 1973, yeah. Very freaking old. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in terms of pterosaurs, I remember uh, um, really one of the first times that it, they were on TV for me, we saw, um, it was 1999's walking with dinosaurs and so the, there's a one little chapter on the onithokairus which was pretty good and uh and yep. then it always seemed like there was whenever there was like a documentary or something there would always be a section on the pterosaurs but it wasn't going to be featured especially prominently but then prehistoric planet have you seen this yep yep yeah they spent like somebody must have snuck them some like the producers quite a bit of cash and said all pterosaurs okay you got it because <laughs> there were so many <laughs> There was also um, the Learning Channel, I think it is, TLC in, in, in uh, the uh, US. Um, they did a, I can't remember what it's called. It's just gone completely blank. But it was every, like it was, uh, they did about 20 episodes a season. There was about five seasons. And every episode they did something. So one of them, they were talking about the dinosaur cove down in Victoria where they were mining for dinosaurs. The only time people literally mined for dinosaurs. And they had quite a few pterosaur episodes, which were fantastic. And they'd go and talk to the actual scientists and, and stuff like that. Paleo World, that's it. Paleo World, yeah. And it had the best theme song. And if you ever have, if you ever got a book that you want to write about dinosaurs and you need a narrator, get that guy. Yeah. Like he, he was like, and that's when they found a dinosaur. 
and he's just the best voice. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And so, and I've, I'm sure I've still got them somewhere. I'm sure there's probably on YouTube episodes. But you just, you know, I, I used to just record them all. You know, sit the old VCR and record them all, and then come home after work or something and watch like ten episodes. And and then they were looking for pterodactyls. <laughs> like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> So uh, I may have practiced that a bit. <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd listen to that docent. So uh, in this chapter, we don't get uh, huge pterosaurs when I had a special guest, uh, Dr. David Hone, come on, and he does a lot of pterosaur stuff. He said that he liked the choice of the Ciarodactylus because it was a good-sized animal. It could it could give you some trouble, but it wasn't going to put you on your butt and like rip you up. It was going to be problematic, but it wasn't going to be devastating to like a seven-year-old. It wasn't going to kill the heroes before they had a chance to escape. So he liked that it was a good choice uh, for a pterosaur to get in there. So are you familiar with, like, I don't, it, from what I've discovered, it doesn't look like there was a lot to know about the Ciarodactylus. It sounds like there was more of a history of, like, what it, how it's been misinterpreted <laughs> than there is what there is. I was going to gonna say, say there's, yeah, like, I, I was reading about the misinterpretation. That's quite interesting in the change. This is what I do. You know, I look for the, 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 the history and the evidence. Mm. And if you look at the timing of when it was found and announced, just happened to be right when a certain Mr. Crichton was writing it. A book mm -hmm. uh, so I think it must have been he may have had other ideas but that was in the news at the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think he must have read something because he would have been researching this stuff um, and yeah that was discovered and released around the time he was writing the book so I just think it was the it was the uh, the Spinosaurus of the time yeah. when it was in the news it was the the new cool thing and he just put it in the book going, well, that'll, I'll cash in a bit. Mm. It is easily the <laughs> most might, modern might animal. follow that. Yeah. The most modern animal by a long margin. I think everything was from the 1800s, the early 1900s, except for like Dilophosaurus was a little bit more modern, but still not contemporary. Yep. But yeah, uh, the C.R. Doctolus was like published in the 80s, 85 or something like that. And then he would have been researching this yeah. book all that time before it was published and set in 1989. So yeah, it would have been a very well, modern idea to incorporate and again when you go back into the history of jurassic park it all starts with a movie script he originally wrote about a student at university dabbling with, with cloning and gets some pterosaur dna it's actually a pterosaur oh. that he first tries to, to clone and uh nobody liked the script he didn't like the script nothing was going forward with the script uh everybody kept saying how much they hated the script so he then changed it to like a kid going to the Jurassic Park and through the eyes of the kid. And he had a whole bunch of guys, I guess you'd call them beta readers today, mm -hmm. uh, reading all his versions of Jurassic Park and they all hated it and everybody hated it and everybody was just so... And then finally one of them went, I'm not a kid. I don't want to read this book through the eyes of a kid. I want to read the book through the eyes of me. Mm -hmm. And that's when he, he, he did the new version of Jurassic Park and got a hit. Well, but yeah, so... In 85 is probably when he was looking up pterosaurs and, and which pterosaur to use in his movie script. So there has to be some link between, you know, the latest news being this species being discovered. And maybe that's what got it, gave him the idea to write the original movie script was the news of this new pterosaur being discovered. Maybe. Who knows? Well, I know well, that he knew, I guess. his beta readers that said watching this story unfold through the eyes of a child like Lex is unpalatable. <laughs> I think they were correct, and we, we certainly get a taste of that 
for about 40 pages <laughs> and, uh, and, and we can and agree. I remember reading a book, not, not getting too concerned with Lex and the kids. I went, oh, okay. You know, we grew up with Steven Spielberg movies. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of childlike view on, a, on an event's not something, nothing new. But what's weird is, have you listened to the Jurassic Park audiobook? No. The guy who's doing the audiobook yes. does not do her voice very well. Okay. <laughs> and so she really, becomes freaking annoying real quick oh, i can only imagine because <laughs> it's just a bad voice it's a bad vocalization and you're just like oh dinosaurs just eat her will you please <laughs> yeah. it would be a different story if that happened but uh yeah we might have we we, we would have felt better uh more strongly with her with her if she were lost as opposed to she survives you're like oh and, she made it the whole way <laughs> and as we know there's so much fan fiction out there there has to be some website with you know a hundred different stories of the death of Lex and the death of Tim. <laughs> Maybe. So there's a couple of depictions that Crichton uses specifically in this chapter to describe the pterosaurs that don't exactly suggest that the beta readers knew what pterosaurs were, <laughs> so to speak. So one of the first ones is that we have Grant, and Grant calls them, quote, flying dinosaurs. And in the animal tally, the list of dinosaurs includes the pterosaurs. They are, for all intents and purposes, it would appear from Crichton's perspective, to be considered dinosaurs, which we know that uh, they are a distant ancestor of dinosaurs, or they share a common ancestor, but they are not dinosaurs uh, themselves. When you're doing uh, your work in museums and things like that, was it a common misconception? Does it exist still today that people get them confused as flying dinosaurs? Do you need to describe that the plesiosaurs are not swimming dinosaurs? Uh, Are these still common misunderstandings? Yeah. And that still happens. Like um, Australia's uh, Queensland, Funnily enough, where I am has just discovered uh, unearthed their first complete plesiosaur. Mm. Australia's only swimming dinosaur. <laughs> so <laughs> that that stuff still happens all the time. I will say, not with kids, never with kids, and generally not with parents with kids, mm-hmm. because the kids will put that parent straight real quick. <laughs> um, so it's more 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 of an older generation that grew, grew up with that same kind of 60s, 70s, 80s. They're all the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. They're all they're all a dinosaur, um, but yeah, like uh, kids today, no, nah, nah, there's no they they know the difference, and they'll tell you the difference before you can even get out of your mouth. So here's the <laughs> but challenge. they're not dinosaurs, <laughs> right? So do you think Creighton knew the difference, or do you think he just do you think that was a slip of his tongue that he has Alan Grant say that they are flying dinosaurs, or do you think he just didn't know any better? I'm thinking he didn't know any better. Yeah. Because a he's not a paleontologist, yeah. and and as I said, I, I watched all the documentaries and I watched interviews and and uh, just to try and see if I could find any little nuggets about the the Avery and the pterosaurs. And it, he very specifically says that normally he takes up to ten years to write a book. You know, not the whole ten years, but he'll be researching, he'll be looking stuff up, he'll be trying stuff, he'll be getting rid of it. But each book takes about ten years, and that didn't really happen with Jurassic Park. Hmm. What, he was working on the script. The script wasn't working. He tried a version of the book and then another version of the book, and that worked. So he was not doing his normal f- – because, you know, he, he created um, ER. He created all these fantastic science, science fiction and, and, and medical dramas and things. So he, he's a very clear guy. He's clearly of the scientific bend. But in this interview, he clearly said that he did not put in the time that he normally would to, to research. So I'm thinking that's exactly what's happened. He didn't. He he was just like every every guy that every person who basically didn't really work with dinosaurs thought they were dinosaurs and and said they were dinosaurs and 
And I'm pretty sure very quickly he learned that mistake mm-hmm. <laughs> when people started pulling him up on it. And I think it's true to uh, – you make a good point. I don't believe that Crichton had any children. Um, and I think his first child was born either right around – like it was very young when, when he passed away. Like I don't – or yeah, I can't recall all the details, but like he didn't raise Well, he says – so he writing Jurassic yeah. Park, he kept buying dinosaurs for his brand new baby. So only just been born as mm-hmm. he was kind of creating Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Had he had so a child earlier? He hadn't he got to that stage where you... Yeah. And, and one of the things he says in, in, in one of the interviews, which I disagree with, is he, he says, nobody knows. Why are dinosaurs popular? That's the big thing that really drove him to write the book was why are they so why are they hang with kids? Why do kids latch on a dinosaur so much? And he's saying there's the usual trope, which is, they're big, they're scary, and they're dead. And as I said, I've been working in museum education for 25 years now and all over the world. So I've seen kids in America, in England, in Australia, all over the place. I've visited almost every natural history museum in the world. And I think I've got it. And that's not what it is. What it is, kids latch onto dinosaurs because it's the first thing they get to claim as their own. Parents don't really know what the dinosaurs are, so they kind of go, oh, you're a kid, here's your dinosaur book and Mm -hmm. here's your dinosaur toy. And it's the kid who starts researching this stuff and learning the names. And then, and that's why you hear them in the museum. No, mother, it's not a pteranodon and it's not a dinosaur. They're correcting the parents. And that's a massively empowering thing for a child to have their own thing to then teach the parent about something is the first time they're, 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 they're literally empowered in this world. And I think that's what it is. Like it's dinosaurs are a massively empowering things because it's something that is theirs yeah. that they get to share with the world for the first time ever. And saying the names so correctly, that's what I think, yeah, watching parents struggle with the names, but they know how to say it. That's a big part of it. You're yeah, right. You, I agree you, with you You entirely. feel superior to your, to your parent. Oh, no, mother. It's not a, it's not a stegosaurus. It's, yeah. a, it's a kentrosaurus. Or, or uh, yeah, that's why, maybe that's why Pokemon was popular, too. <laughs> You'll never understand, Mom. <laughs> yeah, which is, and when you think about it, Pokemon's got so much in common with paleontology, you know, through the names and the look and the... The evolution you know, part, yeah. This one does this and this one does that. And, yeah, yeah, so I, I, I can see that. But, yeah, so that's what I think. I, I That's what I personally think is what's happening. It's an empowerment thing. But, again, it suggests Crichton his kids weren't old enough for him to go through that phase of kind of introducing them to dinosaurs and have them introduce them back to him Mm -hmm. where he would have learnt the difference. (laughs) Another part that comes up with, uh, with the Ciarodactylus is, uh, the mythology that all of the, the sites that Hammond's foundation was sponsoring were involved in Northern digs. So at way at the end of the book, this is like this question that uh, finally gets answered by Dr. Marty Gutierrez as he's chatting with Alan Grant. And he says, quote, is that why Hammond Foundation supported Northern Digs? Because intact genetic material from dinosaurs was more likely to be recovered from cold climates. And Grant supposes, yes. And um, this is a question that was raised uh, back on like page 30 by that guy from the EPA, Bob Morris. And so we know that just uh, genetic material does not last. It doesn't fossilize. Apparently, there's the combination of what it takes for mineralization to enter into a fossil is the same thing that takes things like <laughs> DNA out of a out of a bone. So th- that was impossible. But in the mythology of the book, for some reason, northern latitudes meant that cooler temperatures, I guess, uh, made it so that 
DNA could be extracted from these bones. However, the Sierradactylus represents an anomaly because while most of the dinosaurs that are discovered are from like North America, the Sierradactylus is from Argentina and it's uh, decidedly not from a northern latitude and is not part of a northern dig. So, um, do you think the, that they were just completely mistaken or was this an oversight by Crichton? Do you think it was because he was adapting this new bird and just knew nothing about it? No, no, no. I, I, I just say. Uh, the first part's more of a generalization because the majority of the things are from the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, and there is a bit in the Avery chapter where they literally say, um, and we've had to get material from South America because they were talking about the pterosaurs. Mm -hmm. And so he, he knew that was from Brazil. He knew it was from South America because they literally say that there's just one very brief mention of it. It's not, a, it's not, you know, I hadn't even thought of it until you just said it. And I went, Oh, actually, I do recall because I, you know, um, as I said, I just listened to the audio chapter oh, <laughs> and really? hated Lex the whole time. Um, but yeah, they they did say very specifically, just for one brief sentence, something about getting material from South America. I, I think he was going with the animals he he had. You can't have, you know, uh, with the prehistoric times. I'm constantly being yelled at for the species I de decide to write about in the magazine. Because they need that cover animal. <laughs> yeah. And they, they need a Tyrannosaur on the cover. The Tyrannosaurs sell. <laughs> Put a Tyrannosaur on the cover of the magazine. So if you're making it, if you're writing a book about dinosaurs, or you're making a movie about dinosaurs, you got to have the big guns in there or else yeah. you're not going to get your market. I think he was just being a science fiction writer at that point. And again, interviews clearly show he wasn't interested in the dinosaur side of thing. He was interested because he's a doctor, a medical doctor. He was interested interested in the cloning side of yeah. things, and dinosaurs were just the end product of the cloning process that he thought would work in a great story. So it wasn't the dinosaurs; it was the cloning and all the science of the book and everything's all about the mathematics and the science side and the the cloning side. Mm -hmm. So I think that was just an end an ends to the mean. These are the dinosaurs you know. If he went to his local museum, they're the dinosaurs you see in the museum. So he was just being a science fiction writer, covering his butt. But they do clearly mention something about South America mm -hmm. uh, collecting the material for the pterosaur. Interesting. So, well, yeah, it... which again makes me think he was onto it. That was what got him into this story to begin with. Was the pterosaur story for the movie script? Mm -hmm. You make an excellent point that Crichton, throughout this, has appeared to be a guy that didn't grow up liking dinosaurs, isn't especially connected to them, but and and some of these like that that shows in a couple ways. What it also proves is that he must have done a tremendous amount of research to get it as good as he got it. I mean, he didn't get it perfect, and the little things that he missed yeah. are, are kind of like, I don't want to say bonehead moves, but they stick out. But the stuff that he got, like, good, he it, the research shows. So there's something to say, hey, for a guy that didn't want to do a book on dinosaurs, he did an awesome book on dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, and, and that, I think, also proves to be true. Like, if, you, if you're not a dinosaur fan and you didn't grow up Knowing knowing your dinosaurs, correcting your parents, <laughs> uh, reading everything, watching everything, which, let's face it, in the 70s and 80s, there was nothing to see and watch. That's what would happen is he's learned it as quickly as he can, as expanded his knowledge as quickly as he can, and there are cracks mm -hmm. because he's written about something that he doesn't know, not being a dinosaur fan or not talking to dinosaur people. You're going to get your ass kicked by saying that. <laughs> 
Well, he's very clear at because the end. Because it wasn't something he'd be aware that it would be a problem. He just was writing a story. He's very clear at the end. He says, however, this book is entirely fiction and the views expressed here are my own. Whatever factual errors exist in the text. So he owns up to it at the end. He knows it may not be perfect and he doesn't want anybody to take the blame but him. And good for him for that. But but, but don't forget, there's frog DNA. That, that covers so much. <laughs> it cures all. Uh, the last thing that comes up, and I think this is a, a sin that most pterosaur most pterosaur depictions in fiction uh, are victim to it's the the, the grasping talons that uh, can lift somebody up off of the ground by the shoulders like they were a hawk or an eagle and as, as far as I understand it uh, how you would describe a pterosaur's foot is plantigrade that they they have a flat foot they walk around on it like you or I and have the ability to grasp and lift something up off of the ground about equal to you or I <laughs> does that translate to most pterosaurs or is that uh Fairly it seems to like yeah. um, a, a good way of thinking about it is a bear. Okay. So bears are plantigrade and digitigrade when you think about it, because okay. they they've got clasping hands, but they are officially a four-legged animal, even though they can get around on two. And on their back hind legs are plantigrade. They've, they they work literally on the flat of their feet. They're like heel to heel to toe, just dead flat. I don't think they can clasp anything with their back feet. Mm-hmm. But their front feet, they can because they are digigrade. They can move their flicks just like us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so uh, I think the best way to think of them is a bear. <laughs> <laughs> their, their front their front hands and things could probably manipulate quite a bit and they would walk around on them, but it's their back feet that, yeah, weren't doing much. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things Crichton did that was – either very forward thinking or he got lucky was, you know, he didn't have the pterosaurs hanging upside down like a bat. Sometimes you would see that in the old days, but he had them walking around on all fours and specifically drew attention to it. Says, you know, letterer was right. They do walk on all fours as if this were like an astonishing insight. And he was impressed and surprised by it to which, you know, this day and age, uh, this depiction of them kind of walking, I don't know, like a tarantula kind of reaching and walking is pretty, pretty cool depiction. And uh, that was one that, I don't know was being used in popular fiction before this. <laughs> That's really come through with our fossil trackway discoveries as well. Right. Because uh, it was all supposed to, you know, what was it? We don't know. We have literally no evidence. And, and you know, you didn't really have working computers back then to digitize these things. You just had to kind of guess. But a lot of fossil trackways have been found with pterosaur trackways on them that clearly show they're doing something weird with their hands. And uh, the way their feet are standing, there's only one way they can do that. So I think scientifically we're much better onto it. And I th- actually think um, there's a paleo artist called John Conway who um, I think, in fact, I think he was just highlighted in the prehistoric times, uh, which is weird because he's from Canberra. He used to work at the Dinosaur Museum that I he did all our murals and stuff. And as a kid, he was from Canberra and he's now one of the big, paleo artist in the world and he headed over to Stanford and all these things and I think that's one of the things he was helping them with was how did pterosaurs walk oh right on yeah so no you're absolutely correct and going back to Jurassic Park 3 Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen the pterosaur section for a while they look freaking weird (laughs) because they've given them the movie the book feet the clasping because there's bits where they you know they try and pick up people and fly away and they actually do pick up someone uh, the guy who designed them came in and I'm trying to think it was a, one of the paleo, paleontologists who were helping them out, but somebody came in with a hawk video catching prey and flying off with it. And they went, that's what you've got to do. 
And so they've given them literally the bird, eagle, hawk, talon feet. And if you watch the movie, they stand out. They look weird because they're these massive, muscular, clawed, moving, clasping feet. And they just immediately look don't look like the the pterosaur feet that you see in, in fossils and things. So like the feet alone, you're like, oh, my God, that's wrong. It just looks wrong. You can just tell it's wrong. It's wrong. Stop it. <laughs> I bet you when they were drawing, like designing and making it move, doing the simulations, like this is like there's a story about when they were making the Rex run. Like we're trying to get this thing up to speed and it's not working. <laughs> Imagine when they're yeah. doing the pterosaurs. They're like, this is something's fishy here. <laughs> it's hard to throw stones, except we know there were some very influential paleontologists in those rooms telling them information mm-hmm. And if I'm allowed to throw a rock, <laughs> uh, Alan Grant is based on the paleontologist uh, Jack Horner. Yeah. Jack Horner has very specific ideas about things. And you can tell, when, especially when you watch Jurassic Park 3, which he, he was involved in. He says right at the beginning on all the documentaries and stuff, they interview him, oh, I had a big influence in the, the direction of a lot of these things. He got his way in a lot of these things. And the really big one is the Spinosaurus killing the Tyrannosaur. Yeah. That was because, his choice, eh? As we all know, Jack Horner was all about T- T-Rex not being a hunter, being a scavenger, and it wouldn't be a capable hunter, and that scene is directly from him. Mm. He went, nope, Spinosaurus. And we now know that's the most ridiculous thing ever. T- Tyrannosaurus' bite was like four times the strength. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he he does talk about things, and one of the things I've always kind of – you know, you're willing to give a lot of people leeway, but before the movie came out, he kept saying, these are going to be the most accurate things you've ever seen. I've made sure they're so accurate. And then when it came out, and let's let's say the word, the, tyrannos- the t- Tyrannodon had teeth. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw an interview where he was questioned about that, he basically just went, grow up, it's just a movie, you've got to get over it. <laughs> wait, 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 you said these were the most accurate things ever. <laughs> That's a bummer. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, so, uh, yeah, I love Jack Horton. He's done so much great work and everything like that. Um, but, yeah, a bit of a naughty, naughty on that one. Yeah, and but as you said, and we weren't there in the room. So yeah. perhaps they were trying to get it to work. And the way that we think it was working, the way we think it works today, wasn't working in the room with their models and stuff like that. And they had to, you have to get on with the job. The movie's coming out in six. Mm. This week's time. We've got to get it done. Plus, the so script says it picks them up, that, so it has to. <laughs> yeah, and and it definitely says that. Well, in the book, it doesn't. In the book, it says they try, yeah. but they're just too. They're not big enough. So this is a and big, the people are too big. So this is a really big chapter that has extra stuff in it, not just the aviary. The aviary is actually only a couple paragraphs. It's astonishing how yeah. when you read this and it says aviary, um... and and I was. Sh- <laughs> Shocked at how little the Avery and how much other stuff was in it. I, I kept going through going, oh, my God. Oh, I forgot that was in this chapter. Oh, my Lord. So we'll start. I got to get into the, the thin intelligence concept that Ian Malcolm brings up. He starts off with the idea that technicians don't have intelligence. He has what Malcolm has coined as thin intelligence. And I've looked into this a little bit, and I can't find another person saying thin intelligence before this. It's either a, a concept that... Crichton developed himself or just a joke that he made up for Malcolm. But I believe that this is an original concept that he coins. Do you know otherwise? Uh, I don't know otherwise, but I can add to it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So weirdly, 
I have come to almost the same theory completely by myself <laughs> just through my career. And I've literally, and that's why I've worked in all these locations. Um, I get kind of picked up to, to create tours for, for, for museums. The intelligence is probably the wrong way to say it, but the other thing that I think they say is highly specifically motivated to, to focus on a single point of information, which is what you have to do when you're a scientist. And that's why I keep telling people, you might be dealing with a paleontologist who knows everything there is to know about the Tyrannosaur ankle. Mm. Nobody knows more about the Tyrannosaur ankle than this guy. Mm. But you try to talk to him about saber-tooths, it's not his field. doesn't know. He might have a somewhat general knowledge from when he was a student or something, or if he just happens to pick up some information, but that's not his field. He can't focus on it because that will just get confusing. He knows everything there is now about the Tyrannosaur ankle. That's not the guy you want to design your tour of a museum. <laughs> and I think there's because a part... they're too focused on the one thing. Yeah, they they need to be overloaded with one narrow <laughs> perspective. And I think that there's and an element also, to this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Well, I'm just going to say there's a part of it where I mean he does concede that it's not that people aren't smart. He doesn't say that Arnold and Wu are are dumb. He says they are intelligent. And I think that there's a big part of this definition. It's just that what they're spending their time doing is that famous idea that uh, you spend so much time wondering if you can do something, you don't stop and think whether or not yeah. you should be doing something. And I think that's the crux of this whole concept of thin intelligence. It's people not spending their time that's improving society in a way. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean. Like, Because I've been explaining it to people for years why I get picked up by all these museums because of that exact thing, mm. is that scientists are very good at what they do and what they do might be a very thin wedge of a very large pie mm -hmm. and you need generalists to, to 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 talk to people and you need specialists to get the work done mm -hmm. you don't want me operating on your heart <laughs> no i know i know a bit about the cutting <laughs> like i know some stuff and i could probably watch a youtube channel and then try and fake my way through but let's face it you don't want me doing Heart surgery, you want somebody who only does heart surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's true. And I think that's probably, that's one of those, when you're a writer, you kind of get the feeling what the writer of something is trying to get at. Yeah. And I think that it's a personal issue for him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was something he'd been desperate to get out because he'd been in some other field, but constantly being blocked by scientists or yeah. getting frustrated. I think there's and examples. So he was just venting. Yeah. <laughs> There are, there's literally a textual example that I think proves what you're saying. So um, the whole idea is that we, because you have thin intelligent engineers that are working on this project, they don't see the surround. And by doing that, they don't see the consequences of what happens if you were to, for example, clone something that's alive. They are so narrow, narrowly focused on how to do it, they don't know what to do once they've done it. They And then it quote, Malcolm says, because you cannot make an animal and not expect it to act alive, although the in engineers were intelligent and they did. You you know, it will be unpredictable. It's going to want to escape. But they don't see that because they didn't look for that. And that's, I think, another element that comes up. And this links directly to the epigraph at the beginning of the book by Erwin Chargraf. It says, you cannot recall a new form of life. So you've got Malcolm speaking to one of the, I guess, contextual pieces that Crichton puts at the very beginning of the book. When you read this book, do it under the this um, influence that you cannot recall a new form of life. This is, I think, suggesting that 
Crichton's thoughts are really closely tied into what he wants to say in this book is caught up in Malcolm's comments here. And it's reinforced by that inclusion at the beginning in the epigraphs. And so I think that you're right, that this is Crichton's voice in a way being presented. And I think that this is evidence of that being true. And we do know that a lot of his stories before this were about cataclysmic <laughs> world-ending events like the Andromeda strain and all those things. So he was clearly of the mind, humanity is destroying itself and we've got to fix things. We just can't keep going the way we are. But also, who is he saying all that to? And it's the next thing that I found very interesting is he's talking to um, Ali Sattler, mm -hmm. a paleontologist. And he very specifically says, what about you and your dinosaur digs? When you're done, you just leave. Do you replant? Do you repair the ground that you've just ripped open in any way, shape or form? And she's like, well, no, because there's never money for that. And he's like, exactly my point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it's not until he said that. And, you know, I've obviously read that when I was much younger. But the second he said that, I went, yeah, it's a really good. And I do know there's a lot of paleo digs today that do very specifically replant and mm -hmm. try and uh, repair the landscape to the where it was before they were there but just as easily there's quite a few that don't mm -hmm. just, I've been through landscapes where you can see oh well that's where they were digging last year or something you know and there's yeah. just a big hole in the ground <laughs> and that's kind of a so, more modern perspective on how to operate as well yeah yeah and that's what I mean but in 19 the late 80s when he was writing this you know, who was thinking along those lines then? <laughs> Fewer, you know, the 80s Fewer were all bit. about take it out of the ground and sell it. <laughs> or just dump the waste in the lake, you know? Yep. Didn't matter. We'll throw it in the so, river. So, yeah, he clearly, like, clearly has an objective, a, a, another objective. As we keep saying, I don't think, for us, the dinosaurs the main part of the book. For him, the main part of the book was the science mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the uh, and how science is, where science is going in the future and how it has to change its methods and he does very specifically say this is such a western thing yeah 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 scientists all ac across the rest of the world hate how the west is so narrowly focused on end result not what happens after the mm. end result <laughs> and so the whole question i had here was like what is malcolm rebelling against and he comes up with this whole idea that it's uniquely western training and that's how he's you know that it's built to achieve accomplishments which are aggressive and penetrative acts. And that's, you know, Ellie can't deny that, yes, what they're doing is penetrating the earth. And I feel like he's the one person who's saying, you know, if man has this dominion given by, you know, the you know the, the Bible says, you know, you have dominion to go forth and populate the world and dominion over all the animals and the fish and stuff like that. But, you know, so you, they're given this right to take but who who's protecting the rights of the of, of nature? Where is the humility before nature that protects them? And so it's this going forward with Western attitudes that I think are are, cu are coupled up in in patriarchy uh, and colonialism and uh, capitalism and then some of that Bible as well. That that is a Western culture. And I don't think the opposite is like the solution is Eastern culture. But he's saying we've had Western culture. It's led us to this point, and uh, you know. House chores aren't better. I think is one of his examples. That uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting one. That 
but yeah, now we away. got dinosaurs. We, we we're gonna have new forms of life. Biotech in particular, the the consequences are great. If uh, something comes out that we put out there, I think a pathogen and a bacteria, something like that, a virus, um, something gets out and you can't get it back, and it's gonna act alive. It's going to resist you to survive whatever it may be. And we think of it like it's okay, simpler dinosaurs, than that. But yeah, has nobody watched Planet of the Apes? For God's <laughs> sake. <laughs> There are consequences to making smart apes do your homework. See, I'm trying. Gardening tra- gorillas is not the answer. <laughs> so yeah, fighting. Uh, you know, what is Malcolm fighting against? I think he's really, he's not anti Hammond. I think he's just this. This is more because I was like, is he a feminist? What is he doing here? And it sounds like he's just like I'm. I don't think he has an answer either. He just says what we're doing that, isn't working. That might be the, the the focal point of his frustrations because as we keep saying he was a he's a medical doctor yeah and medicine is one of the few yeah we got to think back when this was being created like in the early 80s the 80s that's more of a global thing like uh, paleontology for most of its life was a western science Hmm. you know it was english people or very specifically americans like uh, chapman andrews going out into asia and finding all this stuff. It wasn't the Asians doing this. It was the Western science going into these unknown areas. Very recently, um, uh, Paul Serino going into Africa and finding all the Nigerian uh, fossils and dinosaurs and rediscovering Spinosaurus and all this. That was an American going into... It wasn't the Africans doing that. Mm -hmm. I think maybe he could see, and maybe that's where his frustration was coming from, trying to deal with all these scientists and discovering... But who's the who's the African guy I can talk to about these things? Or who's the South American guy I can talk to about these things? I think you're right. And finding the, that there really wasn't anybody. You, you put this in a great perspective because I think you're right. This whole time, dinosaurs has been the analog to really talk about what he would rather be talking about. And that's biotech. And you're right. He was a medical doctor. He was probably in these things. And he's watching biotech firms take this aggressive, capitalist, achievement oriented focus on getting the next drug patenting the uh the next uh, gene or something like that and he's like the consequences yeah. here are bad and they're only driven to get this piece but they're not looking at what's going to happen once you have a dinosaur and the dinosaur is just an example it's it's a it's a a symbol of what is you know the result whether it's a virus it's a medicine it's a cure it's a next type of person it's a new kind of gene it, it's a, yeah it was the um um, Hitchcock said, "It could have been anything. The MacGuffin. It could have been Dolly the sheep. Yeah, the MacGuffin. The yes, Mac- it was. Okay, dinosaurs. The MacGuffin. That's the word. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I had you around for a reason. Um, yeah, like it, it could have been about anything. And you, you've just triggered an old memory of mine where a firm, for the first time, broke the DNA code of a human, and then they basically patented it, mm. which means from that point." on any science to do with the DNA of a human had to pay them a certain amount of money for the patent. I'm not, I, I, and it was going to court. I'm not sure if they ever won that court case. And um, I, I'm assuming they didn't because otherwise we'd be hearing about it all the time. But if that was around that time, you can imagine the frustration of a very clever doctor who's learning about all these other fields of science and cloning and stuff, hearing that and going, can you not see how dangerous that is? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, we're so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and because they're talking about new technologies and, and terms and things that we're not quite grasping, they're getting away with murder before we get catch up and realize, hang on, 
actually, there is a problem with that. So I'm not sure. <laughs> that must have been around that same time. Yeah. I think you've gotten right to the heart of what this whole thing was about, this entire exercise about a medical uh, student who is wanting to be an, an author all his life and didn't really want to do medicine. And he's observing all of these horrors, you know, unfolding before him about people who are just the wrong type of people to be doing this sort of work. And he's built this the story with dinosaurs, even though he doesn't care for dinosaurs because he wants it, the message to be understood. <laughs> and, and, and what a great and example. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, you know, because, you know, I write for the prehistoric times and it gets boring talking about uh, the same thing over and over again. This guy went out in the field or this lady went out in the field and they found this thing and then they got it wrong. And then another guy stepped in and went, oh, no, you got that wrong. And this is what we think of it today. I've been writing since 2008 for the, the magazine. So I must have done nearly 100 articles. That's going to get boring for the reader. Mm-hmm. Every single species has something interesting to say. The way it was discovered, where it led, like there's something in there. The person who found it might be an interesting character. It might say something about the world at the time. Um, for, for instance, one of the things we just talked about was a, a Chinese fossil. And I didn't know this stuff. I looked into the history of this Chinese fossil that was found by a German. And following this German guy who was kicked out of, who ran from Germany before the war, got into, uh, I think it was in England, and then the war's starting and he's German and everyone's looking at him funny. He's like, oh, I better get out of here. <laughs> so he goes to China and starts finding all these things and then the Chinese aren't quite accepting him either because Germany's an ally of Japan. That story by itself was just, I didn't know that story. It's like I, I went, well, where's where's Michael Crichton coming from? And and that one sentence, it was a, I wrote it in 1985 as a script about a pterosaur that I went, wait, 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 there's got to be more to that. And that's why, you know, I just try to find what I could about that because that to me, that's the original idea. That's where everything's coming from. Wow. Everything else stems from the, the, the trunk. Right out of this aviary. It's the greenhouse. Yeah. It's the solarium yeah, that and the whole story comes from. And you could see, and, and now that you know that, the incubator, and being a writer, the you incubator. can kind of see that's the bit he wanted to get to. Yeah. 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 Everything else was getting him to that point where that was the original story that he's been talking about. You're, you're dead so, right. So I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's a purely Australian thing, by the way. <laughs> We're so arrogant. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Make it till you make it. <laughs> Well, we're out of time again. Unbelievable. I have so many more things. I wanted to talk to more about the, the, the Dilophosaur uh, sexual dimorphism. I want to make more jokes about Australia, but we just don't have time anymore. I want to talk to you about guano. No. We wanted to get into the... Yeah, uh, we might might have to do a part two. <laughs> right on. Well, um, well, thanks so much. Is there um, any party thoughts? on? You said people should look you up to find your books, to find your Facebook author page. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a YouTube channel, so I keep releasing. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, as I said, I've visited a lot of museums, so, you know, they can see my videos of all these museums, you know, because uh, you may not get the chance to go visit that museum, but you can see what the museum looks like. Um, I just released one on the Milwaukee Museum, the M- MPM, the Milwaukee People's Museum. You look up my YouTube, or I've got a podcast about the bizarre, the bizarre history of Australia, which, you know, Canada's the same. Australia, Canada, and America, are so bizarrely linked if people have never heard of john ledger you have to look up john ledger so yeah so uh my podcast is is talking about all these either characters or people who just did all these amazing things that we never hear about what's the name of the podcast yeah i got lots of things 
Uh, bizarre, the bizarre history of Australia. Okay. All right. All right. You got another listener just like that. <laughs> At least one. <laughs> That's what I like to eat. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you've been enjoying thank you very yourself. Much. Yeah. And uh, looking forward to, to listening to future chapters now. <laughs> I right want to see what happens next in the book. <laughs> Thank you so much to, to Phil Hoare for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. So the text today, this week's text is aviary, spanning from pages 276 to 287. In a synopsis, Arnold and Malcolm suppose that Grant and the kids are having challenges navigating the park because they've yet to successfully trigger a motion sensor. And Malcolm shows that the 92% coverage of the motion sensors is decidedly insufficient to Arnold. Arnold hopes that nobody has gone into the aviary because the pterosaurs are too dangerous. Then, Grant and the kids enter the aviary and find that the pterosaurs are too dangerous and escape with their lives thanks to Lex's baseball glove. Meanwhile, Malcolm waxes philosophical with Sattler over the way of the world and how misdirected we as a Western civilization have become. And finally, Grant and the kids find themselves with nowhere to turn as two Dilophosaurs are at the riverside where they'd like to pass. And the Tyrannosaur distracts them and then the raft is able to slip by unnoticed. Our characters. John Arnold. John's exhausted and confused. You can imagine he's been up all night working on the system. He can't find the Rex, he can't find Grant, and he can't find the kids on page 276. He's gulping coffee, surrounded by half-eaten sandwiches and paper plates, and it's been about 14 hours since Nedry's destroyed the computer. Recall, which is at 7 p.m. on Friday night. Arnold has been pulling an all-nighter ever since. On page 277, uh, he's now called a doctor for Malcolm. That's good. That doctor should be there in 40 minutes or 15 minutes, according to helicopter rides. Nah, we'll see. So the doctor has been called for Malcolm. It should be any time. What time do we have? Now call for a doctor for Malcolm. That is important news. Page 277. Arnold doesn't think the, dinosaur, the dinosaurs are smart enough to intentionally evade the motion sensors and also shares about their problems with the aviary. Arnold sure hopes the kids aren't in the aviary on 278. And Ellie wonders if Malcolm respects John Arnold, to which Malcolm admits he does respect him to the limit that he respects any narrow-minded engineer on 284. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Ian Malcolm is now up chatting with John over the comms on 277. Malcolm at times can be very forthcoming about how to relate data to people, as when speaking about chaos theory, or coy when he's gathering data for his own arguments, and at times downright condescending, like now, when Arnold doesn't understand something, but he says, I think it's quite simple. Malcolm believes that 92% motion sensor cover is inadequate, especially considering that the 8% that's not covered is topologically unified or contiguous. Malcolm admits Grant is, quote, no fool and believes that they are eager to activate a motion sensor at every chance and that they must have other problems preventing them from doing that or that they're on the river. Malcolm is astute. He also recalls that the aviary was left off the tour and asks why. Malcolm worries that the kids are in the aviary on 278, and Malcolm has trouble with pain management and begs for more morphine on 283, but Ellie won't satisfy him. He suggests that they fill all the tubs and all the rooms on their floor with water in preparation for disaster. Then he asks about what other provisions they have. They have flashlights, walkie-talkies, sterno stoves, matches... Malcolm believes that a Malcolm effect is upon them on 284, and it implies that catastrophic changes are imminent. He begins to elaborate on Western thinking and his concept of thin intelligence, and admits the morphine is, quote, making him philosophical. Malcolm has a problem with Western ideology, scientists and engineers and technicians, because they dis dishonestly motivate themselves by saying they're pursuing, quote, the truth about nature, which is true, but that's not what drives them. Nobody's driven by abstractions like, quote, seeking the truth. 
Scientists are too preoccupied with, quote, accomplishments, argues Malcolm. He, in his own way, rails against the Western view of scientific inquiry and its impact on the natural world, and then prompts Sattler to offer her experiences in the Badlands and see how it compares with his description, which she cannot defend. On 285, Malcolm says the solution is to get rid of the thin intelligent ones. The answer is to take them out of power. When Sattler argues that a new world order would cost mankind the great advances science has given us, he snorts at the idea that science has advanced our lives so much that we can't live without the system. He wants people to wake up. We've had 400 years of modern science, and we ought to know by now what it's good for and what it's not good for. It's time for a change. And he adds that he believes the world has proven itself to be resilient and durable. The damage science does to nature isn't harming the world. The world has proven it can survive. Ellie Sattler. Sattler returns as Malcolm's surrogate nurse, the only person available to take care of him while park managers are out moving animals and restoring control on 283. For now, she's administering pain management strategies for Malcolm and humoring his ramblings. She admits they haven't any emergency rations prepared in the hotel or in the lodge, the safari lodge. Sattler challenges Malcolm's belief that a Malcolm effect is about to unfold on 284. Sattler reveals that in her own field of study, they do not have the money to restore their dig site after excavations, which seems to add weight to Malcolm's admonition of the scientific industry. On 285, she challenges Malcolm, what do you propose as an alternative to this intrusive Western training? But Sattler defends the system, arguing that we lose all our advances we've gained through this process. Malcolm laughs at her belief that the world is better now than it was 400 years ago. And then she calls him a nihilist, suggesting that we're on our way to destroying the planet. Lex Murphy. Lex is unimpressed with the sight of the lodge. They were hanging their hopes of rescue in, calling it a dump on 278. Lex also notices the smell of guano from the animal droppings all around them, and then she starts asking about the lodge being unfinished on 279. Upon spotting the pterosaurs, she asks Tim if it's a pterodactyl. Lex is concerned the animals may be dangerous, but Grant doesn't think so at first. But they start biting Lex, drawing blood from her scalp. She's in trouble now on 280. Lex is disgusted as the Cerodactyls defecate on them as it swoops past. One of the dactyls grabs Lex with its feet, snatching her by the shoulders, attempting to fly away with her. While that's unlikely, what's worse for Lex is the dactyl jabs at her with its long, pointed jaw. Lex rightly screams. The dactyls eventually get Lex's baseball glove, a Daryl Strawberry Special, on 281. The four pterosaurs all chase each other, trying to get at this glove, and our tourists are spared from further attacks. Tim tries to comfort her after losing her glove, but she's resistant to his support. Kind of nasty about it, too. I hope they choke and die, she says to the pterosaurs as they fly away. Lex's miserable opinion of dinosaurs has expanded after riding down the river a bit. Now she's thinking back to Ralph, the infant triceratops from this morning, and presumes, meh, he's probably dead by now on 282, but it would have been fun to ride him. When Grant and Tim are talking about breeding controls in the park, Lex chimes in that Tim is very interested in sags, because she's a nosy brat. <laughs> We're never given time to ever forget that she's a nosy brat. When the Big Rex appears to attack them again, Lex howls in terror, and then she declares, I hate him, as it continues to pursue them on 283. As it moves off and they continue down the river, Lex hears a hooting sound. Lex wonders about exiting the raft and moving on foot to avoid the Dilophosaurus on 286, but Grant says no. Lex worries about how to pass the Dilophosaurus because they're poisonous. And when Grant instructs the kids on how to behave while they slip by, this time the kids listen. Perhaps Grant has finally earned some obedience from Lex after all this. Tim Murphy. Tim acknowledges to Lex that, yes, this is a pterodactyl, which is the novel which in this novel is synonymous for pterosaur in 279, whether you like that or not. Then Tim wonders why the pterosaurs weren't on the tour. 
When Lex loses her baseball glove, Tim tries to reassure her on 281. And Tim thinks back to Grant's question about frog DNA from back at the Stegosaurus chapter, which you don't have to remember, but I do, uh, was way back on page 168, which is more than 100 pages ago. But a good callback. And again, there is connective tissue for some of these narratives and plot points throughout the book, and for others that aren't. The quote then was, Grant, quote, recently learned of an intriguing West German study that he suspected held the answer on 168, but they're interrupted by the Dilophosaurs up around the bend in the river, which Tim recognizes as the poisonous ones on 286. Dr. Alan Grant, seeing that, that the Teratops Lodge is unfinished and boarded up, Grant is disappointed and gets everyone to head back to the raft on 278. Grant was also wondering why the pterosaurs weren't on the tour on 279, and getting suspicious, things aren't adding up. He identifies the Sierradactyls when they swoop near, and he doesn't think that they have anything to worry about initially. But when the pterosaurs attack, he grabs the kids by the hands and flees with them, diving to the ground as the animals swoop over them. Grant's shirt is ripped by the pterosaurs' claws on 280. That's pretty serious. In the next pass, the Sierradactyls poop on them, and Grant drags them forward and escape. As one of the pterosaurs attacks Lex, Grant throws himself against the animal, knocking it off the girl and onto the ground on 280. And the pterosaur scratches at Grant's chest now that he has it pinned on the ground, and he can't see or hear anything but the shrieking animal. Grant mentally calculates that they're probably only a couple miles from the hotel, even in walking distance, once they escape the aviary, but, quote, Grant was in no hurry to leave the river again on 282 after the pterosaur attacks. Upon Tim's inquiry, Grant elaborates on his frog DNA theory. Recall Jurassic Park has a, quote, double contingency for important control mechanisms like breeding animals. First, they irradiate the gonads, and second, they breed them all as females. By these two mechanisms, breeding is impossible at Jurassic Park. Surely both mechanisms won't fail, hence the double contingency. But Grant says, quote, irradiation is notoriously unreliable and probably doesn't work on 282, and then adds that, quote, across the animal kingdom, sexual reproduction exists in an extraordinary variety. Uh, just as he's about to explain why frog DNA was important to his theory, they are interrupted by a scream. When the big Rex lunges at them, there's nowhere for Grant to maneuver the raft. It's only 10 feet wide. Not being able to escape in any direction freaks Grant right out, and they are nothing but lucky that the Tyrannosaur couldn't break through the bushes. As a result, he is, quote, badly shaken on 283. They hear a strange hooting from multiple animals up beyond the bend in the river, and Grant is cautious, so he pulls the raft over and waits. Grant rejects the idea of escaping on foot from the Dilophosaurus because they are small enough to slip through the foliage and get at them once they're noticed on 286, which is unlike the T-Rex. When the Big Rex arrives and the Dilophosaurus are distracted, Grant seizes the moment and instructs the kids to shut up and stay down while he slips by on the river. Grant is still armed with the air pistol and is prepared to deter the Dilophosaurus if necessary on 287. The Sierradactylus. There are four of these in the avi aviary. They're said to be big fish-eating pterosaurs on 278. They were put in the aviary before the lodge was finished to acclimate them to the area, but that was a mistake. They are, quote, fiercely territorial. They are nicknamed dactyls and referred to as a group of pterodactyls. Their attacks are impressive. They glide to the top of the aviary, fold up their wings, and dive. They're 30 pounds. They've knocked workmen unconscious with their dive bombs, cutting them up badly. They whistle to each other in 279. Grant sees these as huge and graceful, and also as, quote, flying dinosaurs. They were identified as Sierradactylus by Grant, known from the early Cretaceous period. They got 15-foot wingspans, furry bodies, and heads like crocodiles, and have a sour odor. They're known to be pescivores from Mexico and South America, and Grant presumes they're not dangerous. They make, quote, kind of a scream as they hurl downwards in their dives on 280, and they snatch up their prey with their claws defecate on them with white streaks, and they can walk on all fours despite their arms being wings on 281. 
Microceratops are in this chapter. These critters are in the foliage above the river on either side of the aviary on 282. We're told there are 22 of them on 164, and they are not known to be a breeding species. These shriek at the Tyrannosaur from the opposite bank on 283. Tyrannosaurus, the big rex, appears lunging into the foliage above the jungle river at the raft on 282. It can't penetrate the dense foliage. It has been tracking the raft and its passengers, apparently, but cannot break through the foliage. That it's been moving alongside the river does explain why Arnold cannot find it with the motion sensors, in a way. Dilophosaurs, repeated hooting cries heard along the jungle river on 283, which is a dead giveaway that we're approaching some Dilophosaurs. It can be heard from a distance, and Tim recognizes these as the poisonous dinosaurs on 286. They are 10 feet tall, spotted yellow and black, with bright green underbellies like lizards on 286. And I think this is just a description, not imagery. They have twin red curving crests along the top of their head from their eyes to their nose, making a V-shape above their head. And they have a bird-like quality in how they move, bending to drink from the river, then rising to snarl and hoot. They're small enough to slip through the foliage to get at Grant and the kids if they show, if they were to choose to. They seem quick. They are performing a strange ritualistic dance, which Grant interprets as a mating ritual. A repeated sequence of the animals mimicking each other. One of the animals is smaller, with smaller spots on its back, and its crest is a duller red, and Grant concludes that they are a male and a female. He's observed sexual dimorphism in Dilophosaurus. When the Tyrannosaur approaches, their vocalization changes to honking and a roar. On 286 and 287, as the raft flows by, the scent of a nauseating dried vomit that's sweet occurs to our heroes. This is the scent of the venomous spit of the Dilophosaurus on 287. It smells like dried vomit. To repel the Tyrannosaur, the Dilophosaurus stomp their feet and honk. But they don't spit. Isn't that strange? Localities. We have the aviary. We're told the aviary was intentionally kept off the tour because they've had trouble setting it up on 277 and 278. It was intended to have a treetop lodge built high above the ground where visitors can observe the pterosaurs. There are thick groves of palm trees by the river, but apparently nearer the pterotop lodge, there are fir trees. These may be a similar species to what we saw during the helicopter landing on the mountaintop, but those trees were only described as pine trees. When the sun shines on the aviary, it leaves a latticework shadow pattern on the ground. The ground is covered in guano, which are white pterosaur droppings. There is a grassy field dotted with wildflowers on 279, and it's described as a, quote, silver dome on 281 as they drift away out the other side of the aviary down the river. Now, remember how it was so um, misty before, or you couldn't see the sun, but now it's sunny and you can see lots of shadows. That's interesting, right? Teratops Lodge. It looks like a dump on 278, we're told. It is said the construction has been abandoned since the Cyrodactyls are too territorial for it to be safe to work on. It's up on big wooden pylons in the middle of a stand of fir trees. It's unfinished and unpainted. The windows are boarded up and the trees are streaked with a white pterosaur guano. The Massasoit Jungle River. The banks narrow and the trees meet over their heads as the raft approaches the aviary and also as it leaves the aviary on 281. The bushes above the river are filled with berries, which the microceratopses eat. Post-aviary, the river becomes, quote, narrower than ever. In some places, only 10 feet wide. A raft may be about 5 feet wide, so that's another couple feet on either side of the raft, and that's it. The branches must hang very low if Lex can reach them from the raft and the river increases in flow speed as well. The river comes to a bend, and beyond that, the Dilophosaurs are at the riverside as usual on 283. Under the branches, it's, it's tunnel-like and dark. Illusions. Letterer is mentioned. Quote, it could walk on its wings. Letterer's speculation was right on 281. This reference is quite ambiguous, what with there being no first name or official title attached to it, but I've made my case in episode 38 with special guest Dr. Roger Letterer that... 
I think the accomplished and well-published ornithologist was a terrific guess at the illusion being made. I think Crichton, while developing a character for Dr. Harding, who is meant to be the world's leading expert on avian care, must have investigated a few ornithologists, and Dr. Letterer was based in California for much of his career. As well, it's more of a coincidence, but Dr. Roger Letterer published a paper on the role of avian rictal bristles, which we covered in episode 38, and his discoveries in that publication have gone on to inform the works of pterosaur researchers. Granted, those academic pterosaur references were made uh, well after Jurassic Park was published, but I still feel like Dr. Letterer is a fitting individual upon which to base this reference. I mean, go check it out. That w- he was a really cool guest. Sterno Stove. Sterno is capitalized because it is a legitimate brand name on 283, referring to a series of portable camping stoves. These stoves use denatured alcoholic jelly in a can to be burned directly in the can beneath a chafing dish, primarily employed in buffet heating. They can power portable stoves, as Malcolm recommends, or as an emergency heat source. And it's good to have, but they're like... In Costa Rica in August, they doubt cold temperatures are going to be a concern. Heating food, maybe, if uh, if Malcolm thinks that they're going to be, you know, bunkering down for a couple of days, maybe. The 1930s, Malcolm alludes back to the 1930s, suggesting that as new advancements in household appliances became more advanced, that housework would be less time-consuming. I can't imagine what housework in the 1930s would be like or what it would, what it would com- be comprised of, but I reviewed what a household life may have been like during the Great Depression. Making things was a priority. There was a mantra to, quote, repair, reuse, make do, and don't throw away. Because especially during the 3030s, the household budget was very modest. So frugality was important, and some clothing may have been repurposed from flour sacks, apparently. Um, They made things such as clothing, cleaning supplies, and linens to keep costs down. More gardening was popular, and likely they cut their own hair in the household. Generations moved in together to share a roof and ease up on expenses. And I guess plumbing had come along and you didn't necessarily have to pump water to procure it for your own use. Uh, They had electricity, so some electric washers and irons helped get things done. It was the Great Depression. Perhaps this wasn't a great place for Malcolm to begin his reference because, quote, new technologies weren't what people were investing in because they were in the Depression. But as, you know, mass production and new technology made cooking and cleaning more automated, it didn't necessarily create more free time, he argues. Does it really take just as long to clean a household today as it did in the 1930s? I have no idea. Surely the self-cleaning ovens and Roombas have delivered us some freedom, right? Lasso or lasso? Quote, 30,000 years ago, when men were doing cave paintings at La Chaux, they worked 20 hours a week to provide themselves with food and shelter and clothing. The rest of the time, they could play or sleep or do whatever they wanted. And they lived in a natural world with clean air, clean water, beautiful trees and sunsets, says Malcolm on 285. The La Chaux cave paintings are found in southwestern France, where there are more than 600 cave paintings of mostly animals from the upper Paleolithic era, which are presently estimated to be 17,000 years old, not 30,000 years, as Malcolm suggests. More accurately, apparently, dating the work is challenging and unspecific. They're from the upper Paleolithic era, which spans from 50,000 to 12,000 years ago, but despite that time frame, these were hunter-gatherer societies with only crude stone tools. Apparently, according to Malcolm, you could work 20 hours a week with these crude stone tools and then play and sleep and do whatever you wanted in a natural world with clean air and water and beautiful trees and such. I've considered this in my life, and like, if you took away all of the modern gadgets and hegemonic state and culture apparatus systems, uh, you know, we would be lowland gorillas sitting in a leafy nest in the woods. Like, is that idyllic? Is that a good life? Is that a better life than we've got? 
Our hobbies would be turning corpses of the things we killed into bone tools, turning blood from corpses into paintings, turning corpse skin into musical instruments and clothing and shelter. You know, as a society, we really have separated ourselves from corpses. <laughs> they were they were the original pastime, I guess. Uh, but now they're so taboo, and obviously for good reason. But is Malcolm correct? Has technology over the past 30,000 years made our lives harder than it was in the Upper Paleolithic? Has the system been rigged up in a way that actually doesn't make our lives better? And we're all just going along with it because we don't know any other way. These are the questions Malcolm's asking. He believes, no, we're not better off. Science has not only asked the wrong questions, but the wrong people are deciding which questions to ask. All right, stylistic techniques. We have italics. Is that the lodge? Indicates Lex, emphasizing that the sight of the lodge is disappointing. And again, italics is and immature emphasis on everything is now an expression of Lex's character on 278. Wow, they're really big. On 279, exclaims Lex again in her usual way. Is she really impressed? Are they really big? Or is she just a hyperverbal kid embellishing every moment? Perhaps a bit of both. Again, the italics and exclamations are becoming affectations of her character rather than mechanics in Creighton's writing. I hate him! On 283, says Lex of Big Rex, while the Predator continues to chase them. You can imagine a youngster using extra emphasis in hate here, so this is good. Quote, because you cannot make an animal and not expect it to act alive, to be unpredictable, to escape, on page 284. Here, Malcolm italicizes life. Here, the crux of a natural system, an organic system, or real-world pattern, is that they are living things, which react to multiple variables in various ways. In other words, they are entirely unpredictable. Order, artificial systems, and programs, conversely, are constructed to run a specific way, and thus are predictable by design. But you cannot design systems for living things. They, quote, act alive, and, quote, escape the system. Here, the crux of the entire argument is about being alive, and that's italicized. And so the emphasis is entirely warranted. Quote, So they are focused on whether they can do something. They never stop to ask if they should do something. On 284, here the italics emphasize that the issue with discovery is not on whether something can be done, but if that something is noblest and best. To Malcolm's argument, most ambitions are for profit at all costs, rather than for the betterment of mankind. Quote, I'm trying to tell you scientists want it this way. On 285, says Malcolm, indicating that the damage done to nature is intentional and desired by scientists because it's some way that they can, quote, show their work, traditionally speaking. Here's the crux of Malcolm's argument. It's not that they are accidentally destroying nature. They're choosing and desiring to dominate nature. It's mankind's destiny, dominion over nature. Quote, that's the last thing I would worry about. On 285, says Malcolm, about Sattler's guess that he's talking about taking action before people destroy the earth. Here, the italics suggest that not only that Sattler was way off in her guess regarding what Malcolm was talking about, but also that Malcolm apparently doesn't believe that the world is nearer being destroyed either. Dilophosaurus, on 286, says Grant in italics. And I can't tell if he's speaking it with emphasis or if it's just meant to be italicized in that scientific paper sort of way. Seeing as how Grant is speaking, I'm going to guess he's giving an emphasis. I'm not entirely sure why he'd be so emphatic with the kids, frankly, other than we're to imagine that these are very dangerous creatures from what we can remember from the Nedry encounter earlier. They're poison, says Lex with emphasis. And in this instance, she's saying the wrong word. The Dilophosaurs are venomous. But the point is, she doesn't know uh, how they'll sneak by. These animals are more dangerous than regular theropods because they can poison people as well as bite and attack. Semicolons. Quote, the building was unfinished and unpainted. Semicolon. The windows were boarded up on 278. I'm not sure what the semicolon does here that a conjunctive and 
can't do. I'm not sure what the point is, other than perhaps Crichton is getting a little too comfortable with the semicolon. It's definitely a go-to piece of mechanics he leans on while writing, but this sentence easily is written, but the building was unfinished, unpainted, and the windows were boarded up. That sentence makes almost more sense than using a semicolon in it. However, Crichton may not have wanted to use two conjunctive statements, but, and, and, in the same sentence. It's not like this is a run-on sentence, though. It's just strange, and notably so. Quote, the animal screamed and snapped, semicolon. Grant ducked his head away from the jaws and pushed back as the giant wings beat around his body on 280. These seem like two separate sentences. I don't know why the semicolon is used here, and I'm not sure if that works either. Quote, he couldn't see, semicolon. He couldn't hear, semicolon. There was nothing but the flapping and shrieking and the leathery membranes on 280. Here the semicolons add to the chaos. The sentence is a contiguous but confusing thought, and it's expressed well. And when you're separating a, a list of items, and, and those and those items are, are, you know, an entire sentence long, you use a semicolon instead of a comma. It's a better form. Quote, the Tyrannosaur was caught in the heavy growth, semicolon. It butted and twisted its head and roared on 282. Here, the semicolon conjoins two clauses that are related. This could be two separate sentences, but using the semicolon makes this faster paced, ratcheting up the tension and the action. So it's used to good effect. And the Tyrannosaur roared a final time and moved off, semicolon. One Dilophosaur looked surprised, then hooted on 287. Again, two related clauses and a call up response sort of interaction. But I mean, it, this wasn't necessary. In many instances, the semicolon is keeping the pacing ratcheted up, but here the pressure is being released. The raft is floating away. There's less need for it. Structurally, mechanically, literarily, is not useful, and it doesn't really have the same impact as usual. Ellipses. Quote, yes, but it's not the safest way to go because it passes through the aviary ellipsis. On page 277, the ellipsis suggests that there's something left unsaid, and in this case, something consequential, especially relating to things being unsafe. This is a great use of an ellipsis, and certainly lends its use well to dramatic foreshadowing of impending doom. Then Creighton does it again. So, if those kids are in the aviary, ellipsis, on 278, elaborates Malcolm, emphasizing the danger our heroes are in even more so now that we know how dangerous this Ciarodactyls can be. Quote, ellipsis, and Grant was dizzy, off balance, and in horror he saw Lex run away, her arms over her head, ellipsis, Tim shouting at the top of his lungs, ellipsis, on 281. Here these are pauses as Grant is, is watching things unfold in front of him in a dangerous way. He doesn't like it. But the pauses are there as he looks from one subject to the next. The ellipsis does this well, I guess. Quote, she shrugged. There's no money, I guess, ellipsis. On 285, says Sattler, as if the ellipsis might be fending off Malcolm until a more satisfactory response presents itself, which it never does. The ellipsis shows that her explanation feels weak and empty, and it's a good use of an ellipsis, I guess. Quote, well, we're just working in the Badlands, ellipsis, on 285, at Sattler trailing off as if that seemed to, up to this point, a reason that the excavations were intrusive, because there weren't plants or things that, like that being disturbed. The ellipsis here suggests that she's having a change of heart or perhaps a moment of pause about her work for the first time. Quote, just side effects, ellipsis, on 285, says Malcolm, as if trash byproducts and side effects were just the tip of the iceberg of the damages and scars that science leaves behind in the natural world. The ellipsis suggests that he could elaborate further if he wished. Quote, they went without food, they paid attention to nothing else, ellipsis, 
on page 286. Here the ellipsis indicates that Grant is recalling what he knows about mating rituals and what to do about getting past the animals. The ellipsis indicates he's still thinking, trailing off, and glancing at his watch indicates that he needs to find inspiration because they're running out of time. M dashes, quote, they fight among themselves for territory, M dash, and they'll attack any other animal that comes into the area they've marked out on 278. Here the M dash feels unnecessary. The conjunctive and already connects these two clauses. A pause as if this were a comma feels unnecessary. It's a strange place to put it, and I can't make a good argument for why it exists, but it does bring a little extra attention to the sentence, so as you're reading, you're finding that they attack any animal in their area because this M dash, I guess, visually causes you to pay a bit more attention to it, maybe. Quote, their huge wingspans, M dash, the delicate pink membrane stretched across them, M dash, so thin they were translucent, M dash, everything reinforced the delicacy of the dactyls on 280. Here, the M dashes are sort of new observations interrupting the obser- observations that came before it, keeping the pacing pretty high. It's not super, but it is effective. Don't you think you're overstating M dash on 285? Says Sattler, but Malcolm interrupts her with this M dash, which this M dash simulates terrifically. Grant noticed that the animal on the right was smaller, with smaller spots on its back and its crest was duller red, M-dash, on 286. And the M-dash serves as Grant suddenly realizing, hey, these are a mating pair. He's concluded he's identified sexual dimorphism in Dilophosaurus and now interprets their behavior as a mating dance. Exclamations. Pardon me for yelling into the podcast again. Thanks a lot, Lex. Yow! Exclaims Lex as a pterosaur glides above them on 278, indicating her surprise. Ow! Exclaims Lex, followed by, he bit me! Illustrating her surprise again on 280. He bit me! He bit me! This isn't necessarily Lex's characterization. She's obviously distressed by these attacks. Come on! Orders and yells Grant as the biting pterosaur sends everyone into a panic on 280. It could walk on its wings! Exclamation mark. Exclaims Grant as if he'd been speculating about how pterosaurs have been able to walk as well. The explanation comes as a surprise discovery and perhaps fascination. Hey, Listen! Exclamation mark, exclaims Lex, this time insisting that she's noticing something of consequence for all of them. She's worried that they may be in more danger, and this exclamation emphasizes that. Foreshadowing. Arnold says that using the Jungle River to navigate back to the visitor area would work, but it's unsafe because it flows through the aviary on 277. And this is excellent foreshadowing. What is in store for our heroes under the dome? It even comes with a loaded ellipsis that implies that some unspoken horrors are sure to come. Tension. As Grant and the kids are slipping past the Dilophosaurus, Crichton employs a lot of tricks to get the tension ratcheted up. First, he takes plenty of time for the characters to worry about what's going to happen to them on 286, spanning two pages and a dozen paragraphs or so. Second, he makes sure he spells out the danger that they are in. The Dilophosaurus are venomous, they're big, and they're intimidating. And they're not going anywhere. Grant is clear. They could be in this mating ritual for ages if they're anything like birds, which they are. Then Lex starts to worry some more, emphasizing what's dangerous about these animals. Avoiding their bite isn't necessarily as concerning as avoiding their spit. And then Grant peeks at his watch, realizing that they're under pressure to make a deadline. Recall the raptors on the boat. Their mortality and their mission are at stake. And the only way out is through. Then they catch a break. The Tyrannosaur, who's been chasing them all this time, arrives, distracting the Dilophosaurus, but also ratcheting up the energy in this scene some more. It's trying to break through the leaves. Everybody's roaring and stomping, and it's, or it's pretty stressful. 
Everybody's laying still. Grant's got his finger on the trigger trying to slip by. And the whole time, there's a nauseating, sickening smell of Dilophosaurus causing them to hold their breaths. The proximity to danger is repeated. These animals are just feet away. And just as they're about to slip on by, there's an ellipsis, drawing out the suspense. And then a dreaded thump in italics. And the raft is stopped moving. They're grounded against the riverbank, just a few feet downstream from the Dilophosaurus. Oh, great, says Lex. Hey, she's just saying what we're all thinking. And then they slip free. The Tyrannosaur notices, but the Dilophosaurus are none the wiser, and everyone lives to fight another day. This is tension written really, really well. It's great danger, great pacing, high stakes, and and some resolution before the day is done. So that's a good chapter right there. Uh, Some literary techniques. We have the metaphors. Quote, discovery is always a rape of the natural world. Always, says Malcolm on 284. In In the film, this is played somewhat coy. Malcolm smirks as he delivers that line. What's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores. What you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. In the novel, the metaphor extends, making it much darker. Quote, scientists want it that way. They have to stick their instruments in. They have to leave their mark. They can't just watch. They can't just appreciate. They can't just fit into the natural order. They have to make something unnatural happen. That is the scientist's job. And now we have a whole society and now we have whole societies that try to be scientific on 284 and 285. Stick in their instruments is a particularly gruesome extension of the metaphor here. I think Malcolm or Crichton or someone in here is using this sexual metaphor to comment on Western ideologies and without being too explicit commenting on patriarchal patriarchal societies. Perhaps there's a Freudian angle being argued for that science, discovery, and accomplishments are all conquests, not unlike sexual conquests, where instruments must be stuck in to make something unnatural happen. They do it because it's their job or their role in society, and now whole societies are trying to be scientific. Quote, it's uniquely Western training, says Malcolm, and much of the rest of the world is nauseated by the thought of it. Then he winces in pain. Malcolm's argument against Western society is a brimming, festering resentment against the patriarchy and Western ideologies. Thintelligence, capitalism, Jurassic Park, they're all just symptoms of a greater illness. As Sattler says, she doesn't restore the badlands after they've excavated. And Malcolm continues to elaborate on the metaphor that the damages in the badlands are just trash, just byproducts, just side effects on 285. These aren't side effects. These are intentional, he argues. Scientists want it this way, he says. It's built into the fabric of science. It's a way of, to assure themselves that they've done the work. Quote, it's built into the fabric of science and it's increasingly a disaster, on 285, argues Malcolm. He's saying that the trash byproducts and side effects of the scientific method leave their mark on nature and scientists like it that way. They choose to leave scars. And the metaphor is that these damages are, quote, built into the fabric of science. Whereas if science were a fabric, the threads and stitches that hold it all together include the damages, the side effects, and the byproducts. This metaphor would be better if it read woven into the fabric of science, but built is what Creighton uses. He's sort of mixing his metaphors up a little bit here. Quote, no, Malcolm said. I want people to wake up on 285. Here, the metaphor that we're all sleeping or in a dreamlike state, oblivious to the truth with a capital T. And once you wake up and see the truth, you immediately feel compelled to act out against this injustice because injustices are being performed and they're being performed secretly or put differently. You're intentionally, purposefully being distracted so that injustices may continue and you aren't aware. 
I just watched a terrible movie called They Live, about aliens that subconsciously direct all human activities. The title, They Live, is a truncated reference to a slogan in the film, They Live, We Sleep. This means the aliens who have invaded Earth, and who are subconsciously enslaving humanity through consumerism, are living, and we the people who are subconsciously being enslaved, are sleeping. And it's through this dichotomy that the aliens rule over us. But by wearing some really stupid sunglasses, Roddy Piper, of all people, can see the aliens and their subconscious messaging, and he awakes from his sleep and he kicks butt. I didn't think I was going to be able to reference that film in this podcast, but thanks to Dr. Ian Malcolm's morphine-induced stupor, I can. So today, we hear the phrase as woke, which originated as waking up to the injustices against black people in America, which with its roots tracing back as far as the 1940s, but it's relevant today as it transformed to represent more than just injustice against black people, but injustice against marginalized groups. Basically, everyone who's been marginalized from the patriarchal capitalist structures that Malcolm has been describing through the thin, intelligent discourse here with Sattler. Well, that was a big metaphor. (laughs) Similes. When they came lower, he could see the animals had 15-foot wingspans, furry bodies, and heads like crocodiles in 279. And we can picture a crocodile's head just fine, so this simile works pretty well. Quote, it looks like a huge bat. On 279, Grant observes of the Ciarodactyl, and we can imagine the furry body and membranous wings of a bat. Though this won't have five fingers like a bat, but rather a single long finger that spans outwards, creating the wing. Quote, it was like being in a tent in a windstorm. On 280, and this is a great simile. We can imagine what it's like being in a thin-walled nylon tent thrashing through the gusts of wind, and the wings of the pterosaur flapping around Grant must be very similar. Plus, being in a tent is a literary reference that's akin to Grant's outdoorsman-like persona. It's it's a piece of effective imagery, and it's in keeping with his character, so that's a great use there. Quote, Finally, it pulled its wings like a bat and rolled over, lifted itself up on its little wing claws, and began to walk that way. And here we get that it pulled in its wings like a bat, and we can picture a bat all rolled up with its arms wrapped around itself in a bat's case dangling upside down, so another effective piece of imagery. Quote, it was like being in a tunnel on 283, thinks granted the tight squeeze and narrow parameters of the raft under the foliage while in this narrow part of the river. This might have been better described as, you know, maybe more claustrophobic, like perhaps they could have described this like it was, you know, the old storm drain that Lex was hiding in after the Rex attack and the land cruisers, or something like being in a drain. That might have been better. Quote, it sounds like a bunch of owls, thinks Tim, of the sounds the Dilophosaurs are making on 283. This is consistent with what we've been told throughout the whole novel, and I imagine that we can picture in our minds the sound of multiple owls cooing away. So this is effective imagery as well. Quote, it smelled like dried vomit on 287. We're told that the Dilophosaurus spit. Perhaps this imagery doesn't link specifically to our knowledge of what actual dried vomit smells like. I'd like to think we'd clean up vomit before it dried. But we can certainly be repulsed by the imagery presented, and that's equally effective in terms of delivering a strong message. Dramatic irony. Crichton uses dramatic irony once again to raise the tension in this chapter, similar to our Nedry chapter. What makes this moment so memorable is the tension that plays out. We are told how very territorial and fierce the pterosaurs are from Arnold's perspective, to the point where he's hoping that Grant and the kids aren't in the aviary because it's too dangerous. And then we get Grant and the kids looking up in wonder at the delicate beauty of the pterosaurs, appreciating their translucent wings, and the recurring statement that they are so delicate. It's almost like they're looking up in merriment at the first snowfall in a Christmas movie. We know that they're in trouble, and they're oblivious, but we know. 
We know the white streaks of guano are about to hit the fan. And whether you remember all that from the last time you read it or not is inconsequential. It's all these literary techniques and devices that Creighton has employed that has made this all the more memorable. This is a quick little chapter, and they're only dive-bombed by the pterosaurs for a couple of paragraphs, but it's unforgettable. So take notes. This is how you do tension and make it something people never forget. Alliteration. Quote, everything reinforced the delicacy of the dactyls on 280 makes this sound neat. The delicacy of the dactyls sort of finishes off this entire poetic observation of these creatures before they turn into to hell demons. Their grace and beauty are given a final cute artistic perspective by Grant, and it's intentional alliteration. Dactyl isn't even a common abbreviation for pterosaurs or pterodactyls, but it works. It's immediately juxtaposed with OW! So this really is the wrap-up of Grant's mesmerization by the beauty of the pterosaurs. Symbolism. Lex's baseball glove, we recall, was argued to be a symbol of her parents' guardianship and the safety she feels with her father. In this moment, she loses the glove to the pterosaurs, but it saves them. She loses the symbol of the thing that connects her to her father, and that's sad, but it does save them. Misdirection. They sort of get, quote, good news while exiting the aviary. This length of the river they're riding is, quote, pleasant and gives a, quote, a little breeze in the hot confines of the overhanging branches. And the rate meant, quote, they would get back much sooner on 281, which is a great misdirect because Creighton then plunges them into mortal danger almost immediately, which is cool. Motifs. We have more thoughts on ecological criticism. Sattler jumps to the conclusion that Malcolm's ramblings are because he believes we're destroying the planet. She beats him to his statement, but guesses incorrectly that he's warning action must be taken. Quote, before we destroy the planet, she asks on 285, and this supposition will be posited by Malcolm, posited to Malcolm by Hammond as well in the later chapter, Destroying the World. Here are two characters who are eager to get ahead of someone with environmentalist speaking points, because apparently they're either sensitive or exhausted with the messaging that we're, quote, destroying the earth. But Malcolm is clear, no, destroying the earth is the last of his worries. All right, in our discussion section, here are some more things that Crichton does that are kind of interesting. Uh, some more show-don't-tell. Crichton does an interesting thing here, specifically noting that, quote, the sun came out as they walked along, and it made, quote, the morning cheerful on 278. This is useful if you want to have birds casting a shadow from above, and even more so, having them notice the shadows on the ground in advance of the attack. So that's kind of clever writing. Then, of course, the shadows move fast and sweep over them, indicating not all is as it appears in this stinky, white-streaked, dilapidated aviary. It's infested with some big mean-spirited pterosaurs. The dinosaurs. Arnold believes that the dinosaurs are too stupid to conscientiously stick to the beaches, the river, and the maintenance roads intentionally to avoid detection. Though Malcolm says that the animals' intelligence isn't a known commodity on 277. This seems unlikely, but perhaps they're compelled to do this for other reasons. The animals are staying in that that special 8% because... There are no fences in the way. If they're outside of the fence parameters, maybe they're navigating this way because that's the way to get around, because there are fences keeping them out of the rest of the park. Maybe. The Sierradactyls are named dactyls and referred to as a group of pterodactyls. As a group, these animals are properly referred to as pterosaurs, which describes them as a family, not pterodactyls. Pterodactylus is a specific pterosaur, but not the name of the family. This is incorrect, and Crichton just didn't know any better. But the Sierradactyls stick out for other reasons in the novel too, which I first brought up with my guest Dr. David Hone in episode 16, Malcolm. The Sierradactylus were first described in 1985 and are the most, quote, contemporary animal, if that's the right word, in the park. So the Sierradactyls are actually found in a southern latitude. There was all this question about whether the, all of the, the digs sponsored by the Hammond Foundation, why they were all northern digs and never a southern dig. But for some reason, 
the Cerodactyls are, are known from Argentina or Brazil, South America nonetheless, not a northern latitude, certainly not a northern dig. So there's an inconsistency there. Either Bob Morris and the EPA was incorrect, or Creighton got confused and just put the wrong bird in here. Who knows? But like, as far as you know, do, do the northern digs even matter? Like it was said full well in the shore of the Inland Sea chapter when we meet Grant, the temperature is already 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is apparently a northern dig that the Hammond Foundation sponsors. So like how much hotter are these southern digs that fail to preserve DNA? Who knows, eh? Also, Grant makes an interesting suggestion that spares Dr. Harding, a world-famous and internationally accomplished veterinarian, a little bit of a pass for never having noticed that the animals he's caring for have been performing the mating dance, brooding over nests and raising young, all behaviors that Harding should have noticed without fail. This was discussed a bit more in depth in my interview with terrific guest Dr. Jordan Mallon in episode 5, The Beach. In any case, Grant says that certain animals in the animal kingdom exchange spermatophores without requiring much physical differentiation between male and female and perform sexual reproduction without, quote, ever having what we would call sex on 282. So Grant, in that comment, is giving Harding a bit of a pass. Harding should notice when dinosaurs are breeding, or at least mating, and he doesn't but maybe it's because they do something strange or, or, or achieving sexual reproduction without, quote, ever having what we would call sex. Finally, Grant observes sexual dimorphism in the Dilophosaurus. One is smaller, with smaller spots, and a duller red crest. One apparently is male and the other female, and this strange ritualistic behavior is therefore a mating ritual. This is exciting. However, the Dilophosaurus are not on the list of animals that are bred with amphibian DNA, as said by Dr. Wu. That is, on page 210... He reveals that the Myosaurus procomsignathes othnelia, the Velociraptors and Hypsilophodons, are the breeding species. This is either one of two things. It's either a big mistake by Crichton, who's totally overlooked his own mythology and doesn't know what he's doing, or, and I prefer this interpretation, I think Jurassic Park failed in all of its attempts to modify and control the dinosaurs, and that they are all capable of breeding regardless of the frog DNA stuff. And I'll kind of elaborate here. I think control on the island is a hoax. We have this entire motif of control being a hoax. I argue these are and have always been viable, authentic, true dinosaurs. All Jurassic Park's double contingencies have failed them. They didn't deny the dinosaur chromosomes or properly irradiate their gonads, and they have always just been authentic representations of dinosaurs. And so all their breeding behaviors and appearances should be interpreted as authentic representations of actual dinosaur behavior, limited only by the vision of the author. These aren't and never have been, quote, movie monsters recreated with patches of some other DNA that has them misbehaving or appearing strange and alien. They've always just been dinosaurs. Recall, Wu wanted to turn to version 4.4 because the dinosaurs weren't living up to expectations. People were going to expect slower, dumber, cold-blooded, and dumpy dinosaurs, and he wanted to make them more like that because the real thing wasn't what people wanted and all their custom-made containment equipment weren't up to spec with the real dinosaurs. And that said, the park has admittedly performed some DNA modifications that help the animals mature quickly. The apatosaurus and tyrannosaur have grown to full size in only four years, for example, and be patentable. Recall the procomsignathid sample had an enzyme marker in it, right? A trace quantity of gamma amino methionine hydrolase or whatever, a marker for genetic engineering not found in wild animals. On page 27, we were told. And Hammond was open to further gene editing to help the animals resist disease, we were told. But ultimately, I believe that the park just failed in all its methods of control. Control has always been the illusion. These dinosaurs were never successfully denied gender relegation. Hermaphroditism may be what's going on with some species, but then how does that explain the Dilophosaurus? 
So what do you prefer, the sloppy author who forgot which dinosaurs had frog DNA, or the crafty author who built up this entire charade of control mechanisms that proved themselves only to be total illusions? I think you know which answer I would prefer anyhow. <laughs> it's the second one. Timeline. It's now 8 a.m. as of page 276, and note it is expressed as 8 colon 00 a.m. and distinctly said to be Saturday. It's been 14 hours since Nedry destroyed the computer, recall, which was at 7 p.m. on a Friday night. And then as of page 281, it becomes 8.30 a.m., and the countdown says they have to notify the container ship of the stowaway raptors within two and a half hours. And only a few pages later, after Malcolm's rant, it is 9.20 a.m. on 286, when Grant and the kids meet the Dilophosaurs. And also recall that Arnold said he has called for a helicopter or for a doctor for Malcolm. So... I don't know how long it takes to send a medical evacuation chopper. We know that it only takes about an hour to fly there, but I don't know how long it takes to actually prep the chopper with medics and paramedics. I don't know. But nonetheless, you know, the end of this chapter is 920. Malcolm should have a helicopter very soon, although he doesn't get one, and I don't know why. Feminism, quote, the number of hours women devote to housework has not changed since 1930, despite all the advances. All the vacuum cleaners, washers, washer dryers, trash compactors, garbage disposals, wash and wear fabrics. Why does it still take as long to clean the house as it did in 1930, says Ron Popeil. Here Malcolm posits to the 24-year-old Sattler why housekeeping takes women today just as long as it did in the 1930s to clean their house. Again, this is entirely engendered to be women's work, and it challenges the idea that science hasn't improved women's lives at all. This perhaps makes multiple points in favor of Malcolm's argument that scientists, read as men, are not improving the lives of women, and a new world order would stop them from perpetuating lifestyles which don't improve our lives, and instead start making improvements that do. And, and let's be clear, Sattler is a precocious postgraduate student at the age of 24, so we might consider what would she really know about managing household chores. Perhaps she grew up with a mom who'd relate to, to Malcolm's comments? Uh, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Can she relate to her mother's experiences of managing a household? Does she know all about folding laundry and take care, taking care of a household? I don't know. Contrivances and plot. So this isn't my original observation, but it is a good one that came up somewhere, likely on Reddit. I don't know. About Malcolm knowing about the raptors on the boat. He was there in the land cruisers, along with Regis Grant and the kids, when they spotted the raptors on the A&B. It was said that this was very important to notify the ship so that the animals wouldn't get to the mainland, and Malcolm was there for that. And then the land cruisers were attacked, and Regis was eaten, Grant and the kids fled into the park, but Malcolm was injured and rescued. So Malcolm knows about the raptors on the ship, but it has slipped his clever mind. However, in this chapter, Malcolm is recalling details he learned during the tour, specifically that the motion sensors cover 92% of the park with great accuracy, acknowledging that the animals can escape their containment, but he's forgetting about the actual animals that he witnessed that have not only escaped their pens, but the island as well. They're talking about animals escaping, and he, this isn't ringing a bell for him at all. That's a little sloppy on Crichton's part, too. Next, the Ciarodactylus we meet in this novel buck the trend that all DNA samples are from the cold weather digs. Ciarodactylus is from Brazil. It's not from northern U.S. or Alberta, like everything else. And then I thought to myself, wait, isn't Dilophosaurus from, like, Texas or something? And it's not. It's from Arizona. And so it gets me looking into the actual latitudes that all of these dinosaurs have come from. Are they all northern digs? So here goes. The dinosaurs, their corresponding localities of discovery, and the latitude at which those discoveries can be found at, generally speaking, are. The Ciarodactyls are from the furthest south, 14 degrees south in Brazil. Dilophosaurs are found in Arizona, 34 degrees north. Hadrosaurs are found in Haddonfield, New Jersey, 
39.8 degrees north. Stegosaurs are from Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado, spanning from about 39.3 to 43 degrees north. Apatosaurs, uh, about the same range. Othnelia from Colorado, Wyoming, and South Dakota, about the same range. Microceratops from Inner Mongolia, China, a latitude of about 40 degrees, 40.8 degrees north. Hepsilophodons are from Spain, France, and Romania, about 40.4 to 46.2 degrees north. Velociraptors are from the Gobi Desert, 42.7 degrees north. But like, it is a desert. It's hot there. We're not talking northern climates if they're getting velociraptors, even though they say theirs are the Deinonychus antiropus, but we'll see. Tyrannosaurs are from South Dakota, Montana. They're from around 43.9 to 46.8 degrees north. Myosaurs and Triceratops are from Montana, about 46.8 degrees north. Procomsignathus is from Germany, about 51.1 degrees north. The, uh, the Uoplocephalus and Styracosaurs are from Alberta. They're about 53.9 degrees north. They're the most far north, and we don't even get to see them. They would, I guess, be the most authentic because they had the most dinosaur DNA from the bones. Maybe. I guess we can get into this later when the novel spells it out a bit more clearly way at the end, but the explanation that somehow the fossils are retaining more DNA from their northern localities is nonsense. I think it's on page 398, so that's right at the end because the book's only 399 pages. All right, next we have this line, quote, The flying dinosaurs were so beautiful, so graceful as they moved through the air on 279, which is categorically incorrect. And it's especially egregious for Crichton of Dr. Grant thinking this thought. Pterosaurs are not flying dinosaurs. They are related to dinosaurs via a common ancestor, but they are not the same thing. This is like saying that your great-great-grandmother's niece's great-granddaughter is your sister. She's not your sister. And by that same conceit, pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. Sorry, that was confusing. Uh, you can recall there are connections between dinosaurs and pterosaurs that may reveal themselves to be very interesting in the future. As mentioned by my terrific guest from episode 40, Dr. W. Scott Persons, he mentioned that pterosaurs have feather-like structures, and early dinosaurs are known to have feather-like structures, and those common features suggest that perhaps they share a common ancestor from which they both inherited feather-like structures. But pterosaurs are not dinosaurs, nor should they be considered flying dinosaurs at all. Next, another problem with the pterosaurs in this chapter. I've heard this during one of Dr. David Hone's Terrible Lizards podcast episodes, that pterosaurs are no more able to clutch and lift items with their feet, as they're almost always portrayed doing, than you or I are able to snatch an animal with our feet. Pterosaurs do not have prehensile toes. They have plantigrade feet, similar to us, and they walk on them. They do not pick things up with them. Perhaps this impression comes from watching parrots or falcons or eagles, etc., that have these terrific grasping hands with incredible talents, but pterosaurs do not have that. They have teeth and they have fingers, but let's not let that get in the way of a good story, right? Nymphalex is a normal girl. She's probably 60 pounds, and the pterosaur is said to be 30 pounds. It's terrifically unlikely it's going to pick up something twice its size and try and fly away. I'm not sure that's something things do, but swooping and dive-bombing intruders, that definitely is something they do, and I'm glad that that was in there. Park management. That John Arnold cannot find the big wrecks as it tracks Grant and the kids along the Jungle River is explained by the motion sensors not being effective by the river. However... There are dozens of microceratops shrieking and bouncing around in the foliage on, other, on either side of the aviary, and the motion sensors picked up 22 of them during the animal count without any issue. Just saying. Movie adaptations. Uh, scientists are actually preoccupied with accomplishment, so they are focused on whether they can do something. They never stop and ask if they should do something. 
They conveniently define such considerations as pointless. If they do it, someone if they don't do it, someone else will. Discovery they believe is inevitable, so they just try to do it first. That's the game in science. Even pure scientific discovery is an aggressive penetrative act. It takes big equipment and it literally changes the world afterward. Particle accelerators scar the land and leave radioactive byproducts. Astronauts leave trash on the moon. There is always some proof that scientists were there making their discoveries. Discovery is always a rape of the natural world. Always. The film takes this monologue from Malcolm and makes it into a philosophical argument between Hammond and Malcolm. Hammond, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody has ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. I simply don't understand this kind of Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores. What you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. Malcolm has a consistent message that science is too focused on whether it could do something rather than whether or not it should do something. Here, the crux of the argument on intelligence, the purpose behind one's actions isn't perhaps noble is the right word. I mean, in a capitalist society, almost nothing is noble if everything is for profit, right? And this is where that Western ideology that Malcolm says nauseates the rest of the world comes into play. But theoretically, say a scientist is pursuing knowledge to know, quote, the truth about nature as science operating in its noblest form. And he thinks that that's ridiculous. It's an abstraction which nobody is driven by. They quest for accomplishment. And he elaborates that the thin, intelligent, narrow-minded, misguided pursuit of accomplishment scars the land, leaving behind radioactive byproducts and trash on the moon. So how are these the same? Well, Malcolm is waxing poetic about his philosophies against the park uh, in both instances, and he's defending the natural world from the penetrative acts of scientific inquiry. So those things are the same, but you know there are many differences. In the novel, Malcolm is decrying the entire scientific profession, whereas in the film, he's just railing against Jurassic Park. Malcolm's tone is entirely different. The novel is perhaps pleading his case, emotionally invested in his convictions. In the film, he's upset that humility before nature is being disregarded, uh, but his comment on the rape of the natural world almost comes off as coy, as if it, it doesn't expect to win over this audience with that line. In the novel, Malcolm is just rambling at Sattler, whereas in the film, these lines are delivered to a boardroom, and the, quote, standing on the shoulder of geniuses comes from a rambling later in the novel, while the raptors are chewing through the bars in the ceiling. Some more stuff here. Uh, the Murphys at home. Lex loses a Daryl Strawberry special baseball glove and wears a New York Mets baseball cap with her blonde hair tucked up under it. Strawberry was an all-star for the Mets and played for them from 1983 to 1990. So this glove and Lex's hat plus Tim's tale of visiting the American Museum of Natural History located in New York City all suggest to me that the kids live in New York, but... I don't believe that's expressly stated anywhere in the novel. Furthermore, we are told that Dunning, Murphy, and Associates, recall their last name is Murphy, is the architectural firm that hired to design Jurassic Park, and they're based in New York City, we are told during the chapter plans. And the lead architect is named Richard Murphy. The connectivity of all of this New York City stuff suggests to me that the Murphys live in New York and that Richard is their dad, and he was a lead architect through some element of nepotism with Hammond. Knowing that Hammond's daughter likely had the surname Hammond and not Murphy, it may also be a bit of a piss-off that he gave this cushy gig to the jerk that's made the life miserable for his daughter, who's now seeking a divorce, right? That's all speculation, but it's a sound hypothesis, I think. All right, Crichton tropes. We have thin intelligence. Technicians don't have intelligence. They have thin intelligence on 284, says Malcolm. Technicians see the, quote, immediate situation. They think narrowly, and they think they 
and they call it being focused. They don't see the surround. They don't see the consequences. That's how you get an island like this, from thin intelligent thinking. Because you cannot make an animal and not expect it to act alive, to be unpredictable, to escape. But they don't see that. Intelligence is the result of, quote, uniquely Western training, says Malcolm, where scientists are raised up to achieve accomplishments, which are aggressive penetrative acts. Entire societies are built up around the idea of being, quote, scientific to gain accomplishments. And it's a patriarchal capitalist psychopathy the Western world has been driving for hundreds of years. As Malcolm elaborates, he says, the damages, side effects, and byproducts that scientists afflict on nature are built into the fabric of science, that scientists like, prefer, and choose this process, and that perspective, in a way, harkens back to the Bible's influence on Western training as well, where Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 states, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Whether Crichton is expressly linking this biblical reference to his text intentionally or not, I believe he's probably not, this ideology that mankind was granted dominion over nature to subdue it and use it as he pleases is inextricably linked to the thin-intelligent philosophy Malcolm is railing against in this chapter. That leads us to Hammond's dream. Extending Malcolm's metaphor of thin intelligence beyond its context, we can see how this applies to Hammond's dream. Hammond explicitly stated he's not looking to save lives. He'd never invest in research into something that would help mankind. The rewards aren't great enough. He can only rationalize Jurassic Park as an entertainment vehicle. It's only for profit. We know that Hammond has done all this amazing stuff, but we also know he didn't do it to better understand nature. It was for the accomplishment, to leave his mark expression that now carries a heavy connotation of sexual assault in this novel, thanks to Malcolm. To achieve this dream, he's driven by Freudian motives and achieve a scientific conquest, sticking his instruments in and doing something unnatural to leave his mark. And in so doing, he's rendered impotent everyone around him. Muldoon is unarmed of any and all weapons to do his job. Wu is relegated to administerial functions rather than doing the work he's passionate about. And Regis is kept from being a promoter because he's too busy performing cover-ups. We said in the earliest episodes that Hammond personified, quote, the capitalist, unregulated biomolecular industry. And as we peel back the onion, Crichton presents us, we, we find that he personifies Western training, scientific method, and capitalism. And recall, he is our villain. Crichton is obviously calling out the institution in this book. Almost paradigm. When Sattler challenges Malcolm asking what can be done about the scientific attack on nature, he calls for a complete new world order that rejects the thin intelligent ones on 285, or in other words, topples the Western patriarchal capitalist structures that, that believe they have been granted dominion over nature. That's the new paradigm he's looking for. Jurassic World Dominion. And as I write this, as I read Malcolm's words, you cannot overlook the more than coincidental observation that our third Jurassic World film was named Dominion. Did they understand it well enough to incorporate it into the greater scheme of their franchise? Obviously not, but the language was there. That's intriguing. Obviously somebody knew this was important. Can you imagine a trilogy whose greater high concept was Western training's problematic scientific method? One which admonished the patriarchal, biblical, and capitalist methodologies built into the fabric of science? That would have been very interesting. Could have been filled with all kinds of messages of conservatorship for the earth, protecting precious resources and exploring new methods that care for the earth, rather than always allowing discovery to always be a rape of the natural world. Always. Island layout. We learn conclusively through Malcolm's inquiry and Arnold's agreement that the 8% of the park that's not covered adequately by the motion sensors are in fact 
topologically unified or contiguous on 277, chiefly relating to the jungle river flowing through the park. Quote, in essence, an animal can move freely anywhere in the park and escape detection by following a maintenance road or the jungle river or the beaches or whatever, says Malcolm. And we're to take this as readers as the truth. This explains if you were wondering how the velociraptors are able to romp freely throughout the park without detection. Not necessarily that they're exclusively nocturnal, as I'd said with some derision in an earlier episode. Next, Grant supposes we should take this as fairly accurate because Grant has established a trustworthy perspective that they're, they've navigated, quote, at least four or five miles, maybe more, since the sauropod maintenance building. Recall they were about eight miles from that location, so they may only have two or three more miles to trek, uh, but they are close, and perhaps only an hour's walk from the hotel. Briefly, we're told that, quote, the trees that lined the riverbank, they saw the huge dark form of the Tyrannosaur moving north, which continues to reinforce that they are flowing north up the river, which is nothing new to us, but a consistency in the novel and, uh, and their direction they're moving in. Signing off, thank you to my, my guest today, the victorious return of Phil Hoare. Phil, we solved this book in this episode. I think we did a good job on it, man. Uh, thank you so much for being a big, uh, fun part of this show thank you so much and i want to sign off today thanking you for joining me if you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about jurassic park you can do that by connecting with me i'm at ryanssrogers at gmail.com we talked about like capitalism and patriarchy and being woke you, i guess you could email me about that if you wish maybe you shouldn't if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book. We're also not the book. All you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead Graphic Novel, the Second Lab's Graphic Novelettes, The Infantry, and the Worst of Them All, The King's Street Capers. And you can find links to all of that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.